Well, hello and welcome to another episode, a fun Halloween spooky month of October episode of Failure Peace Theater. Ooh. Kicking off a little bit of a tour through Spookville, beginning with the now cult classic, but at the time not so revered, Burbs, or The Burbs, starring Tom Hanks, America's Tom Hanks. In a brilliant film by Joe Dante, a wonderful, wonderful little um, slice of Americana being disintegrated and dissected and thrown back in our faces with a little bit of fun. So we are excited to talk about this one. Uh, it'll be the first of some scary movies for the month of October, some uh, some tinged with a bit of fright here and there, uh, and The Burbs certainly fits that bill. Um, but as always, I am joined by... Catherine. My sister, right? And of course, I am your amiable co-host, Tim. And we're very excited to talk about this cinematic failure piece. Um, as I said, now a cult classic, but at the time, while it was financially successful, didn't really find a lot of purchase with critical response. Uh, a lot of critics, even some of our favorite critics here on this podcast, did not care for the birds at all. Uh, which is reflected in its Rotten Tomato score. I think but, it's one of those films that um, it it floated in. It made its it made money, but then it sort of floated out of public consciousness. And even as a, a cult classic, you know, you look at some of Dante's other films, like Gremlins, perfect example, and the insane cult status that that film has attained. Um, mm. The Burbs really hasn't made it there yet, and I feel like it should. I think if not for the presence of Tom Hanks, if Tom Hanks's career hadn't continued its meteoric rise in the 1990s, I don't think this movie would be remembered. Um, it came out a f really just a few months after Big, which a lot of people would argue was Hanks's really big turn. You know, he'd hit it big with Splash. He'd been around for a long time. He did Bosom Buddies uh, back in the early 1980s, and that had been a relatively successful TV show. Um, Splash comes out in like, 84, I think, mm -hmm. and, and that's a, a huge splash, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, then he kind of, you know, did a few more films throughout the 80s that were pretty successful. Then Big comes out and is massively successful. Uh, Penny Marshall directed, absolutely brilliant. Great script, great cast, uh, and, and hits big, and Hanks gets nominated for an Academy Award for big and many people saw the burbs which came out very quickly after was postponed slightly uh, out of the the fall of 88 when it was originally supposed to release and came out in the uh, early uh, months of 1989 february which generally february is a bad time to release a movie if you're going to find success right january and february are when movies get dumped when studios don't have any belief in them this would have been an amazing october release and I think that was its initial plan. Like it was definitely a fall 1988 release, but Big had been really successful. Hanks was on the upswing, and by the time this came out, Hanks had you know his nomination had been announced, and a lot of people felt like they were just riding the coattails of that film to try and you know sort of build off of Hanks's current hotness to make this film something. Uh, it's sort of like what happened. Do you remember Passengers, that Chris Pratt, Jennifer Lawrence movie that came out? I do. The yes. sci-fi one. Uh, terrible film. Really awful. Yeah. 
but it got released, it got made and put into the public consciousness because it starred two of the hot, hot, hottest actors at the time. And they knew people would go see it just because they were in it. And a lot of people felt the Burbs was doing that. But this is a very different film. Uh, Hanks has had a, a pretty varied, well, at this point anyway, he had a pretty varied career. He made his sort of traditional, everybody can enjoy it kind of movies like Big. But then he also would kind of come back with these very awkward, very strange films. Um, you know, a lot of people, another sort of semi-forgotten Hanks classic at this point is Joe versus, Joe versus the, the Volcano. volcano. <laughs> I was just thinking made, about that one. <laughs> which he made right after this, right? Like came out just the next year. Um, and it's really not until the, the double hit in 1993 of Philadelphia and and Forrest Gump. That's where his career explodes. And pretty much for the rest of the 1990s and early 2000s, Tom Hanks was gold. Everything he made, everything he touched, and everything he's, he was And in. he still is. And I he's mean, still kind of The guy there. still yeah. puts butts in seats. I'll go, I'll watch anything with Tom Hanks in it. Um, even if I know it's not going to be a good movie, I'll see it anyway. Because right. I just like watching him act. Yeah, no, he's, he is very good. He is America's Tom Hanks. And he has perfected something that I, I think many people chase in Hollywood, which is the relatable everyman who is also watchable. Because the true everyman, you would never pay attention to him in a film, right? Like Sam he, Worthington. You would, right. You would just <laughs> never, ever. He's just a block of wood. He is a dull statue that you put in the corner. That's the everyman because the real everyman is boring as shit. Tom Hanks is the everyman that we all believe we are. Right. He he's he's relatable and lovable and kind and caring. And and it's it's a perfect tightrope walk that he's capable of walking. And and really nobody else can do it quite like he does. The only other person Jimmy Stewart that would, good. Well, and that's that's the really common comparison, right? He's really the only person from quote unquote old Hollywood mm -hmm. that had that same characteristic. Um, and in many ways, Hanks is very much the, the modern Jimmy Stewart, right? That same sort of confident, capable, absolutely pitch perfect in pretty much everything that he does. And, and the only other person I would put with him is, is a far, I don't want to say less successful, but a less known actor, and that is John Hawks. Um, he's one of those dudes, if you see his face, you would absolutely know it, uh, he was in, I first took notice of him and realized who he was um, in uh, Miranda July's Me, You, and Everyone We Know. Hmm. And uh, he played a, a sort of love interest of hers in that film. And it's this beautiful, quiet performance. Uh, he was the uncle in Winter's Bone. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That's John Hawks. I love John Hawks. He's, he's absolutely fantastic. Um, so another everyman, but on a kind of different Scale More of like the Hanks, indie movie, you know? Everyman. Exactly. Um, but so Burbs is definitely one of Hanks's weirder efforts from the 80s and 90s when he was, was still comfortable sort of pushing outside his zone. And, uh, and it shows, right? He, he still is sort of doing his Tom Hanks thing. He is by far the most grounded character in this movie, even though he probably goes the furthest. Uh, but he's the one we're meant to sort of see all of these events through. And, and generally, he, he is the character that everyone in the film turns to when they want to sort of get, you know, a good opinion of what's going on. Um, but yeah, he, you can't really say enough about Hanks in this movie. 
So I guess let's just jump into it. Uh, I'm raring to talk about it. I actually watched it twice today. Good. Watched it once by myself going through it, and then uh, I realized that my uh, my wife had never seen it. Um, I think we had sort of half watched it once together years ago, and but it just hadn't stuck. So we watched it again together, and she really enjoyed it, as I, I knew she would. Um, and then my kids were kind of dipping in and out, but they were, were doing other stuff. But So... The Burbs and, and why we're discussing it is not necessarily because it is uh, currently considered a failure. It, like many of Joe Dante's movies, have gained a sort of fan base over the years, right? So uh, I guess we can really start there. Joe Dante directed this film, and Joe Dante is probably, if you were growing up in the 80s and even the 90s, really, you know... Joe Dante is the reason why Stranger Things is really successful. Like, yeah. a lot of people attribute it to Steven Spielberg, and Spielberg is absolutely a part of that universe. E.T., um, you But know, Spielberg's career is a little bit more patchwork in terms of the kinds of movies that he makes. Right. Spielberg has always kind of insisted that he push outside of comfort zone films, right? E.T. was one thing, and then Indiana Jones is another, and... You know, all of his his alien obsessions, his war films, you know, all of these these varied movies. He's obviously tried to push outside that. Joe Dante has stayed within a fairly narrow range of movies. And, uh, of course, his most famous and successful film is Gremlins, uh, which came out several and years before is this. a masterpiece. Yes, Gremlins holds up remarkably well. I watched it not too long ago uh, with my kids for the first time. And, and it still works on pretty much every level. It helps that Chris Columbus um, wrote it. Yes. I mean, I guess really we've got, I mean, the cross-contamination in the 1980s between guys like Chris Columbus, Steven Spielberg, Joe Dante, Richard Donner, um, you know, it's, it's just a plethora of incredible directors all kind of working on the same stuff at the same time. You know, you could argue that Spielberg is the the central the the centropic force, kind of binding them all together. But that's kind of because so Spielberg hot. is the household name, you know. Right? Yeah, he just he was the guy that could get projects off the ground. Right? If Spielberg attached his name to it, it was going to get made. Nobody was going to stand in his way. Um, whereas, you know, Joe Dante, unfortunately, by himself, has never had that kind of success. And so Gremlins uh, was that success, and, and Dante got that pretty much because I, I guess Joe Dante's first big movie, if we want to talk about it, is The Howling, which You don't was, think Piranha was big? <laughs> <laughs> Piranha was definitely big. I'm more of a Piranha 2 guy because of the Jim James Cameron, Cameron connection. Yeah. But, you know, like James Cameron, he, you know, Piranha was one of those, you know, sort of Richard Corman style. Uh, well, it was Richard. Cor it was Roger Corman. It was New World Pictures. So, um, you know, but Joe Dante's first success was was Piranha, which was a horror comedy, um, which could describe pretty much everything that Joe Dante's ever made. Um, but it was a Jaws knockoff as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you had that connection to Spielberg. But really, his first sort of big swing that got him a lot of attention was The Howling, which was the first of many sort of successful early 1980s werewolf films, probably culminating with John Landis's American Werewolf in London. And 
that sort of all came together. Spielberg brought those dudes together because he wanted to make uh, the Twilight Zone movie. Right, and so the Twilight Zone movie was coming together. He was trying to find horror directors that could execute and do cool things, and uh, Joe Dante got plucked to do that. And Spielberg, you know, using that centripetal force to bind the universe together, brought together him, John Landis, who directed American Werewolf in London, uh, and George Miller of Mad Max fame to mm-hmm. do the different segments of the Twilight Zone film. So Dante directed uh, It's a Good Life, which is a a lovely little piece. Again, it's a bit horror. Mm -hmm. It's a bit comedy. It's a bit American, uh, you know, 1950s and 60s Americana, right? There's a lot of cool stuff going on in that. Um, It's it's generally the segment that's not talked about very much um, because it's overshadowed by, one, a remake of probably one of the most famous Twilight Zone episodes ever, the (laughs) the, uh, Captain Kirk episode. There's a gremlin on the wing. There's Um, someone on the wing. Something (laughs) on the wing. Um, I uh, love you, Shatner. You don't listen to podcasts, though. Um, He doesn't. No, doesn't (laughs) care. But um, but uh, the the John Lithgow headed remake of of uh, Terror at fifty thousand feet or Nightmare at fifty thousand feet. I don't remember the title. um, Directed by George Miller. But the entire project was completely overshadowed by John Landis's segment, wherein uh, three people, as a direct result of his really ineptitude and and his blatant disregard for safety concerns, um, three actors were killed in a it's helicopter like ineptitude crash. runs in their family. It does. Uh, Max Landis <laughs> has certainly done nothing to prove his father's legacy wrong. Um, now, I, I don't hate John Landis. I think he's done some interesting stuff. Um, but there are a lot of people in Hollywood, uh, Steven Spielberg included, that refuse to work with him anymore because of what happened on the set. Uh, because it was direct choices that he made that led to the deaths of those people. One of them being the actor Vic Morrow, uh, father of Jennifer Jason Lee. The actress uh, was killed in a, a helicopter stunt that went wrong, uh, along with two children. And so uh, Landis was convicted, but you know did not serve jail time. And the studio was simply fined and, and tried to pay out restitution to the families. But uh, it was it was bad. It was a bad project. And Spielberg very famously announced after that 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 was the end of of New Hollywood, which is is pretty much the era that Spielberg and Lucas and Coppola. Are, are credited with starting in Hollywood, right? The, the breakdown of the studio system, you know, full control of the director, right? The director becomes the god of the movie, and he makes the decisions that drive the film forward rather than a studio executive or a board of directors or something like that. And, and Spielberg, basically, after that project, said that was a mistake, right? That that's, uh, directors shouldn't have that kind of control. And so... You know, Dante didn't, you know, was not sort of on Spielberg's shit list after that movie. Quite the opposite, right? So he tapped him to direct Gremlins, the project that he'd had in development with Chris Columbus. That's a smash success. Gremlins blows up. I loved Gremlins as a kid. I shouldn't have seen Gremlins. I shouldn't have seen Gremlins when I was five. Everybody should have seen by Gremlins. By God, I did. Come on. It's um, a perfect movie. It's a terrifying film at times, but it is, it is lovely. 
but so Dante directs that. He follows that up with uh, another one of my favorite films of the 1980s, which is Inner Space mm-hmm. uh, and Gremlins, uh, or not Gremlins, but Explorers, right? Which was another uh, sort of. That was the one not, with Ethan Hawke, right? That yeah, Ethan Hawke and River Phoenix. Yeah, little kids. River Phoenix. Wow. Yeah. So, or, or, I, that might have been River Phoenix's first film back in America because there were all, they had all kinds of problems with him because they would use all these like modern American colloquialisms on set and as part of his character and he'd been living in like a commune in South Africa for his entire life and he had no idea what any of the stuff was so he messed up pronunciation all the time. Um, but so yeah, so he did Explorers, which I absolutely love. Explorers, it's a, it's a kind of broken movie in a lot of ways. Like uh, apparently the production. He had, he had submitted his assembly cut to the studio for like final processing and then the final edit and all that stuff. And they basically just took his assembly cut and put it out. They were just like, nah, we're just going to put it out as it is. He was like, well, but I didn't finish it. It's not, it's not done. <laughs> That's okay. Like, there's other things that we need to do. And they're like, nah, don't worry about it. Uh, and they put it out and it came out against Back to the Future and got just destroyed. Um, as as you would not be surprised, right? I mean, like it, it made like ten million dollars on a twenty million dollar budget. It was just complete failure. Um, but it's it's a fun movie. Uh, but it starts to establish as Joe Dante's habit of working with the same sets of actors, right? Joe Dante is one of the most notorious directors in Hollywood for working with the same set of people over and over again whenever he yeah. can. Um, this is really his only collaboration with Hanks, but you, and and we'll everyone talk else about in it the eventually. Film. <laughs> but pretty much everybody else shows up in in another Joe Dante movie at some point. Most famously, Dick Miller, absolutely fantastic indie and sort of long time working man of film. Uh, he plays the next door neighbor in Gremlins, comes back in Gremlins too, even though he's a it, he obviously died in Gremlins 1. They, they just make it seem like he was fine when the gremlin drove his snowplow into his house, but whatever. Uh, I want to say he was in... He was definitely in Piranha, I'm pretty sure. I think that's where they first met. Uh, yeah, Dick Miller was, was in Piranha, the original, because uh, he was a, a Roger Corman guy from way back. Uh, he's in Explorers as well. Uh, he plays... a. Uh, uh, helicopter pilot that sees the kids when they're flying their spaceship around. Uh, I want to see, I think he was in inner space too. I don't remember though, but who was in inner space was Robert Picardo, who is Woo-hoo. the other Joe Dante staple. Uh, Joe Dante will do anything to get Robert Picardo in a movie. And, uh, and by golly, he does it well in this one too. And it's because Robert Picardo is a fantastic actor. And he should he's be he's great. He should be in tons of things. Uh, I absolutely love Robert Picardo, um, and he's he's great in this too, uh, even though it's a very small part. But so Joe Dante is the director that's most responsible for the little kids going on adventures against crazy supernatural forces movies. Uh, Spielberg is credited with it for E.T., and he absolutely, I think, established that as a as a modern bankable genre, right? Children against X, right? But it was solidified with Gremlins, Explorers, you know, Gremlins 2, and and many other of, of Dante's films, and especially Explorers. Like, uh, I watched Explorers not too long ago, and the, the attire of the children, like what they're wearing in Explorers is 
exactly what you see them wearing in the first season of Stranger Things. Like it is the same type of clothing. Um, you know, like Ethan Hawke's little members only jacket in that movie with the, the plaid, you know, in, uh, <laughs> the, the plaid interior, like all that stuff is, is very much there. So, but yeah, so Joe Dante is that guy and, and his films from the 1980s, even though they were not necessarily initially successful, which most of them outside of Gremlins really weren't, um, he did more to deal with that tone and establish the feel of movies in the 1980s than I think a lot of directors did. Uh, and he was certainly in that, that Spielberg wheelhouse. Um, but whereas in the, in the late 80s, in my opinion, Spielberg kind of lost the plot a little bit. He, he wasn't really working a lot. He, you know, Indiana Jones 3, as much as I love Last Crusade, is, is kind of a weak film. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's a fine Indiana Jones film, but it is not a great movie in general. Um, and, and a lot of Spielberg's late 80s output just was not fantastic. And really not until Schindler's List, which I think kind of lit a new fire under him a little bit. But even the 90s are still hit and miss for Spielberg. Whereas I think Dante was was sort of rocking pretty hard throughout the late 80s. Uh, not to mention the night, you know, he kicked off the 1990s with Gremlins 2, the new batch, which is now considered by many to be one of the greatest films ever made. I, I don't know if I'd go that far, but man, it is a fun one. It really um, is. It's such he a ridiculous film. He also made uh, Small Soldiers. That was a great movie. He did. Movie. Yeah, 1998. Um, that was one that, you know, when I was kind of preparing for this, my, my husband and I watched The, the Burbs a lot. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite movies, and I... He also loves it. So we were talking about Joe Dante and I'm like, you know, I can't believe that the guy who made small soldiers, he was like, wait, he made small soldiers. Apparently that was what did it. He had no idea I kicked it over, huh? that that was also Joe Dante. And it's like, yes, your childhood directed by Joe Dante, <laughs> directed by Joe Dante. It's amazing how many of his films sort of fit into that. Um, pretty cleanly and, and, uh, and very clearly. And, and this is certainly one of those for me because, the the 1980s was a was was the the open rejection of the values of the 1950s and 60s right where america had sort of turned hard on quiet suburban small town living right it had been built up by shows like I Love Lucy and Leave it to Beaver and um, uh, what was the one? Uh, My Three Sons, right? Like all of these like, you know, classic American, you know, family sitcoms. And the 1980s is where I think all of the sentiment on that turned, right? You've got movies like Blue Velvet, which of course is in a a different league, but it's still addressing the same concerns of the seedy underbelly of the white picket fence, right? Like behind that white picket fence is horror and terror, but you don't know about it because it looks fine. You know, it's, it's something that David Lynch would continue to explore and perhaps the greatest examination of that, which of course is Twin Peaks. Mm. But The Burbs is kind of the last, almost quite literally the last gasp of the 1980s poking fun at small, at the, the suburban, small American life, right? The, the inanity and mundanity 
of suburban living, right? Which you can hear in the conversations in this movie, the, the, the asides, right? Hey, did you see my tools? And, you know, he's got this brand new box of tools that he's never opened. He never has an intention of opening. Them, <laughs> by God, it is expected that a man in the suburbs who has things will have a box of tools that he can use to do nothing with. Oh, thinking um, of building something with those? Thinking of building some of those? Oh, yeah, you know, I mean, you know. Uh, it's, it's just, it's wonderful. And it's, it's, I'm not going to say it's incisive satire. I, I think it's very broad satire. I think it could have gone farther into those. And I think had the writer strike not happened and interfered with sort of onset rewrites and the ability to dig deeper, uh, because that's that's one of the complications. Joe Dante's always had complications on his films that were really kind of outside of his control. And this time they began filming, the writer strike happened, and the, the guy who wrote this movie, Dana Olson, was on set. He was working. But he was unable, as part of the Writers Guild, to actually compose new scenes and dialogue for the movie as they worked. And no other writers in Hollywood were willing to do it either. So that resulted in a lot of improvisation on the part of the actors, you know, just trying to come up with additional scenes that they could do. And, and it results in a, a, less directive, a less direct film than it could have been, perhaps. But I think even despite those problems, the Burbs really hits on a lot of cool things. Um, so why is it a failure? Uh, it made a decent amount of money. It had a small budget, $18 million, mostly because it was shot in pretty much one location. Um, and that is a very famous location um, uh, known as, uh, what, Colonial Street, I believe? Uh, Mayfield Place. Uh, well, that is the name in the in the film, but the location is is oh Colonial the back lot yeah the it's Colonial, the Colonial Street, back, Street lot. back lot on Universal Studios, uh, which has been used for dozens and dozens and dozens of projects. The last and possibly most famous being uh, Desperate Housewives. Yeah, uh, this was Wisteria Lane, and uh, I want to say that the 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 actual house that Tom Hanks's character lives in was the a modification it was a rebuilt version uh, or built off of the original um monster mansion that's where the monsters lived and they filmed um so i mean these these things have been around forever right and these were quite literally built in the time period that the film is is lampooning right the 50s and 60s as part of the universal studios backlot and it was it was a, a a strange thing because they they had a lot of opportunities apparently to push outside of that space right but the entire film takes place inside that cul-de-sac which is like 10 houses on the universal studios back lot kind of a wonderful metaphor for how people exist in their their bubbles in suburbia um i admire that the film doesn't leave the little cul-de-sac that makes me happy yeah, they said it basically just didn't feel right for them to do that. Like, these characters, this is where this drama's happening. Why would they go anywhere else? And so every time Art, you know, suggests, hey, you want to go down to the deli and get a beef sandwich or something like that, it just gets <laughs> immediately dismissed. No one even pays attention. It's like, why would we leave? Why would we go anywhere else? Um, so the main thing was that the film had a, a very, very negative critical reaction. Uh, at the time, most of the big reviewers did not care for this film. Uh, many of them cited the Academy Awards writing on the coattails of Tom Hanks thing. Okay. Uh, a lot of people 
disagreed with the lack of genre specificity. Uh, this is a generally broadly referred to as a black comedy, but it's a little bit of a horror film. It's a little bit of a comedy, and it's a little bit of a western. <laughs> Uh, or at least Hanks' character is often framed with, you know, Inyo Morricone style music as he's yeah. marching towards this other home. Uh, you know, so there's there's all these different genres being blended here, which at this point I would say is a hallmark of Dante's work. Dante doesn't really like staying in one wheelhouse with his movies. He swings pretty wildly between tones. And he's one of the few directors that I feel can and still keep his films relatively tight and successful. Uh, a lot of directors, they, they pick their tone early, they stick to it, and that's what you get. But he is kind of all over the place, but his movies never really, to me, uh, you know, personally, they never feel bad as a result, right? A lot of movies I watch and it swings. Well, I'll give you a good example. Um, Let me see here. I, I'm blanking on his name, but the guy who directed like Kingsman, right? Mm. Uh, so it's Matthew Vaughn. That's his name. Uh, okay, so Matthew Vaughn, I have a, a long and somewhat complicated, you know, film relationship with. Uh, Matthew Vaughn first came onto the scene by producing um, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch, mm. right? Which are great Guy Ritchie movies, right? Possibly Guy Ritchie's best movies. They are. <laughs> he, he, yeah, he produced both of those. That got him a little bit of cachet. He made his own movie called Layer Cake, which is the movie yeah. that got is the movie that got Daniel Craig the James Bond job. It's also bad. <laughs> it's not a great film. Uh, it's an interesting premise. Uh, he always has an interesting premise, but the movies themselves f fall ridiculously flat for me. Uh, the, the Kingsman movies, I can kind of turn my brain off enough to just not care. And they're act they're other decent actioners, so it's whatever. But you know, Matthew Vaughn will have like a big, powerful action moment, and then he'll make a joke about anal sex, right? Like immediately after. Now I feel like and that really worked adapting Stardust to the screen. Stardust is, in my opinion, Matthew Vaughn's best film yeah. by far uh part of it's because the source material is fantastic mm -hmm. and it's well i'm not going to say it's impossible to screw up a neil gaiman film or a neil gaiman story because you absolutely can but it's very difficult because gaiman writes these very i'm not gonna say he's very specific he, his his writing is very specific it's open enough that i think it you can read it and it feels like reading a screenplay in a lot of ways because he's he's telling the story and he's telling it with great detail, but it's open enough that you have to bring your own imagination into it, which is what a screenplay should do. A screenplay gives you the direction. It gives you the scenes. It gives you the words. And then you kind of fill out the world with your imagination. And that's what the director's job is, is to, to bring that to life. Stardust is, even though it has some of those tonal swings, the world he establishes, they fit. And the tonal swings that he establishes are ones that, that he kind of brought to the project himself. And they, they hold together decently, even though it's all a bit silly. But Kingsman uh, is unsuccessful or less successful at that. I really am not a huge fan of... I like moments of X-Men First Class, but moments of it are real, not good. 
um, in a bunch of ways. And I don't know, he's just a director that he flips tones, and most of the time it doesn't work for me at all. Like, I don't enjoy it. But Joe Dante, he can do much of the same thing, and either because of his skill or just his awareness of the story that he's trying to tell, he can kind of keep that game alive. And it's not always easy. And this movie has, I mean, a lot of people don't like its tonal shifts, but it, it works for me. So uh, it's tomato meter, a uh, very low number of actual reviews from the time period on Rotten Tomatoes. A lot of the ones are they're those modern reviews of people kind of coming back and revisiting it now. But even with those, which are generally far more positive, uh, it's at a 53%, so very middle of the road. Uh, the audience score is much higher, reflecting its cult classic status at 71. But even still, only about 60,000 ratings, which is pretty low all things considered, right? Um, it's, it's overall critical reaction was, was mixed to negative, I would say, if we're being fair. Uh, so a few reviews that I pulled, um, Dustin Thompson from the Washington Post, uh, although initially flares up on high-concept firewood, this caper about nasty neighbors and curious klutzes gradually dies into an uh, dry, dies down, excuse me, into isolated crackles, sputters, and futs. Um, and, and this was a fairly common thread: was that the movie actually starts off very strong. Um, it's it's suburban setting, the people sort of living their lives, the strange neighbors, like all of the setup stuff works really well. A lot of the, the more critical reviewers felt the movie just kind of fell apart as it went along, right? It kind of lost its own threads. Um, and and I, I saw that quite a bit. Uh, Hal Hinson from the Washington Post, why is it not funny? It's just not, not remotely, momentarily, intermittently, or otherwise funny. Uh, so Hinson, if you read his full review, he has other things to say about the the film, but his biggest beef is that he didn't find that any of the humor worked for him. So as we know, humor is, is a very sort of personal thing. Like you have to have, I don't want to say the similar humor, a similar humor to the director and the, you know, the people sort of assembling the film, but it certainly doesn't hurt. Um, but I will be the first to say that the laughs in the burbs are not always overt. Yeah. Um, this is a movie where, well, for example, later in the film, as as Bruce Stern's character becomes the commander watching mm -hmm. from his roof with his high-powered binoculars, even though the house is right across the street, uh, you know, he's sitting on his roof with a yellow mug of tea and a box of animal crackers. <laughs> Just gingerly eating animal crackers on his roof in full fatigues with a gun, Right that's the humor of this film, right? It's not, you know, funny man, fall down, go boom, even though there is plenty of that. But the humor of this film is the absolute insanity of the world they inhabit, right? And it, it's a world that shouldn't be insane, but it is. And, and so I can, I can understand why somebody would not find it funny. I think especially if we do bring this film forward to today, when a lot of these 1980s references and a lot of the understanding of, because the suburbs don't look like this anymore, right? Like not, not like this. Um, certainly they're not completely apart. I mean, I've got friends that live in cul-de-sacs and, you know, they've got their, 
their HOA that they have to deal with and all of their annoying neighbors. Like, of course, that's still it's, a thing. It's very much the idea of of the American keep to yourself, even though you're surrounded by other people. Right. And so it's a lot of people keeping to themselves and wondering about those on the other side of the fence and right. then discovering what the other side of the fence is actually up to. Right. And, and, and there is a payoff to that, right? Like you're that, if anything, that's one element of the film that you could potentially criticize is that it spends a lot of its runtime arguing that people should be left to their own devices and not, you know, forced to, to, you know, kowtow to the needs of a neighborhood who want to know who they are. But then at the end they're like, but we definitely need to know who you are. <laughs> and, and it kind of, you know, sort of undoes its own theme right there at the end. But apparently they tested endings of all three variations, right? Where the neighbors get away with it, where, uh, the, where Ray catches the neighbors as he does and, and they get caught. And then one where, um, they're innocent like the whole time. Like they tested all of those endings and this was, and the one that they picked for the movie was the most, the one that most people responded to. So there was some testing there. They tried it a couple of different ways, but people wanted the satisfaction of knowing that Ray was right all along, uh, to, to cap the film, which I, I think works as a choice. Uh, all right. So from Roger Ebert, uh, good friend Roger Ebert, the Burbs tries to position itself somewhere between Beetlejuice and the Twilight Zone, but it lacks the dementia of the first and the wicked mm. intelligence of the second, and instead turns into a long, shaggy dog story. Aww. Yeah. Um, which this is uh, not this... an Ebert film, though. Like you no, would watch no, no, it, and no, you no. would know Roger Ebert would hate this. Ebert, Ebert, Ebert was not a Joe Dante fan. And uh, I don't think he cared for pretty much any of his films. He was okay on Gremlins, but uh, even that one, I don't think they was particularly fond of. Uh, neither was his uh, partner in crime, Gene Siskel, who on the Chicago Tribune side of things said, the script would like to be a horror film, a comedy, and a commentary on suburban living, but it doesn't hit any of those targets. And see, um, I feel so, like it hits all three of those. I don't know. Right. I'm just... Yeah, I'm I'm at a loss. I'm like, wow, you know, you picked mm, all the things the film does right. <laughs> seemingly, yeah, it's uh, it, and a, a lot of the the negative reviews, the truly negative ones. This is what they harped on was that it was genre confusion, and you know, '80s was the rise of well, really the resurgence of the genre film after the the you know, early 1960s, because really, you know, 1960s and 70s saw the you know, people were wanting more real, realistic films, films that dealt with more everyday problems, everyday issues, and we had kind of gotten away from these broad, fantastic, supernatural, you know, these larger stories. Uh, they'd always been there, but they were backgrounded, right? The movies that were successful, I mean, if you go look at, what, at the movies that won Oscars in the 1970s, right? They're all these quiet, calm, you know, people with problems. You know, it's, it's uh, Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, it's, it's Kramer versus Kramer, right? Like, that's the kind of stuff that was getting attention. Um, you know, I think that's why William Friedkin was able to find such success is because that's the kind of stuff that he liked, you know, the French Connection. And, and then he goes and makes The Exorcist, which blows people away because they weren't expecting it from him. Um, and genre film kind of creeps back, right? Um, uh, 
C. Robert Cargill, uh, Mass and Worm on, on most platforms these days, uh, longtime reviewer for Ain't It Cool News and Spill.com and a bunch of other places, now a writer himself. He has a theory that, that genre films on like a 15 to 18 year cycle, right? That basically you've got like a 20 year period where everybody's just going to eat genre films, right? I just, I want to, you know, the world sucks. I just want to watch a movie about people who punch things or I want to watch a movie about uh, movie about people who fly or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and we go through that for about 20 years and then like the general populace at large gets oversaturated with it. And we're done with that. And now we want stories about, you know, little boys who fall through ice and lose a toe and now they have to deal with it, right? <laughs> we want movies about, you know, a mom who loses her husband in a car accident and has to put her life back together. You know, it's when Nicholas Sparks just blows we up. We want a marriage you know. story. Yeah, exactly. And, and we're kind of at a point now where we've got so many delivery mechanisms for film and so many films being made that I don't know if we'll ever see a full swing back one way or the other. Because, I mean, quite frankly, at one point, you went to a movie theater to see movies, and there were only 150 to 200 movies released in a year because there were only so many weekends. Now it's like, whatever, right? Netflix put out 65 movies yesterday. Go watch them if you want. And don't. Most likely you won't. (laughs) Yeah, most people won't. And and so, like, I don't know if we'll ever fully see this sort of, like, flipping of the switch that we can look back through film history and sort of observe. But it certainly seems like we've had such an explosion of comic book movies specifically that I think people are tiring of them they'll still be super successful because the people who love them will always go see them but as far as like you know your mom going to watch iron man 3 because well that's what's in the theater this weekend like that's not going to happen anymore you know or or it will will stop happening and so I, i think that that's that's sort of an interesting thing and the burbs is is in between those worlds right it's a genre film right it's it's a horror comedy but it it is touching on those very real life concerns that we would expect, right? You know, a guy's having problems with his neighbors. He's working with his friends to try and figure out what's going on, but it has this, so the core of it has this very simple everyday concern, but then it's layered on top with all of this ridiculousness. And, and it, it, again, I totally understand why it wouldn't work for somebody, but with Hanks at the center of it, anchoring it, I don't see how you could absolutely hate it. Uh, I think that's that would be hard. So the common problems, um, people saw this as a step back for Hanks, who they felt was sort of on an upward trajectory. They felt the Burbs was sort of a step down for him, therefore bad. Uh, many of them complained about the poorly rendered characters, right? It has a lot of characters, but they're pretty much one-note characters. Uh, again, however, I feel like that's kind of intentional, yeah, um, because these really should be one-note characters because your neighbors are one-note characters. Right, you're never going to know them that well. If anything, art gets the most development, but even he is the slovenly, always-in-your-business, you know, next-door neighbor that just kind of hangs around, and you tolerate him because he's he's okay. Um, so, again, I think that the, the characterizations are kind of very specifically geared towards this this is how you would see a neighbor who did these kind of things. But um, still, it was a complaint. Um, Ebert specifically said that he felt like most of the suburban ideas that it was it was displaying were kind of recycled from other projects. That it, 
it wasn't displaying it had made the decision it was obviously not a realistic portrayal of the suburbs but it was also not a fresh portrayal of the suburbs <laughs> uh so it's it's in this weird at least that's that's sort of what i'm extrapolating from what he was saying that it it's it sort of relies upon the tropey expected pieces of suburban film exploration but doesn't really do anything interesting with it i think this is mostly a criticism coming off of blue velvet myself like i think that's what it is because the, the blue velvet is, is a couple years before this but not too far away and and blue velvet of course is this deep deep dive into the sort of disgusting nature of american living and and, and i don't want to be disgusted all Right. That's a, and that's kind of my thing too. Is that's a very different film, trying to explore very different ideas. This isn't trying to make suburban life be awful. It's pointing out that it can be, but I think it's very important that at the end of this film, most of the positives of living in a suburban area are kind of reinforced. Right. It's not really trying to tear down those tropes. It's pointing out that many people who live in them probably don't realize how terrible they themselves are. It's the epitome of satire. But, you know, it takes yeah, the mirror and it puts it back and, and lets you see what, who you are, where you live, what you care about. Um, and it does it in a really funny way. Yeah. And generally, the purpose of satire, while it is turning the mirror, is also to try and improve, right? To yeah. say, like, this, this doesn't have to go away, but we could be better, you know? So um, another complaint I saw that was kind of interesting was that the villains wind up being more interesting than the suburbanites uh, in their villainy, which, again, I think in a movie where you've got a bunch of quote-unquote normal people going up against, you know, sort of stock East German villain characters. <laughs> I mean, like, in terms of the 1980s, you pretty much just slap, a you know, a, an Eastern European accent on a character, and they were like, ugh. You know, which is kind of another interesting part of this is coming out at the tail end of the 1980s after the fall of communism. But still all of the, the panic around, you know, people from that region, you know, being people from and, another country. You know, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and still sort of, you know, preying on that idea as much as they can. Um, it's it's still kind of interesting. But anyway, in any case, you know, people said the villains, you know, were sort of more interesting than the, the suburbanites, which could definitely be true. Uh, and the main thing, it wants to be a comedy, but it also wants to be a horror movie. It doesn't end up doing either of them especially well. And it's weaker as a result. Uh, so those are the major complaints that I'm sure we'll address. Some other things that I thought were interesting. Uh, this was the first production under Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's Imagine Entertainment, which is now a, a fairly large powerhouse in Hollywood producing. Uh, as a result, Ron Howard's dad, Rance Howard, uh, makes a cameo at the end of the film as one of the detectives. Um, Ron Howard, of course, at this point had directed Tom Hanks in Splash, so that's how they had a relationship. And uh, would go on to direct many more Hanks projects, uh, more most specifically the uh, uh, the Dan Brown adaptations, uh, Angels and Demons, and uh, Inferno. Which, and to be fair, da Vinci they're Code better than and, the books. Uh, yes, the films actually are, are watchable action thrillers, uh, but they're the books they should be read by no human. 
this is certainly better than the written component that you would find on the page. Uh, and this was also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, was made during the 88 writer's strike, uh, which caused significant production issues. Uh, the writer was on set, he was available, and unable to produce scenes, which led to lots and lots and lots of improvisation, uh, which I think is, is fairly evident in the final film, and usually for the better. Uh, but so let's let's get into the debrief. Let's let's bring this down uh, because the burbs is great. Um, it's uh, it opens with a, a fascinating and just a lovely. So it was this is you know 1989. The Universal logo, the the very super famous you know spinning globe with the Universal Pictures logo on it. Makes me so happy whenever I see it. They yeah they they do a great rendition of it. It had been updated by this time. The the Universal logo was not this sort of classic you know what looked like a handmade model version. But they 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 make this great choice. A very if we're gonna be honest, a kind of Spielbergian choice, right? Mm -hmm. Spielberg very famously loves to integrate you know, mostly in the Indiana Jones movies, but he does it other times too. He loves to integrate the the title of the production studio into his credit sequence. So in Indiana Jones, the Paramount logo fades into the mountain in the background, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And so Dante does it here. We we zoom in. The spinning globe under the Universal logo comes to us. And we go right a, to know, the Midwest. And we right zoom into the Midwest, Midwest uh, which looks to be... I saw a lot of discussion online of people trying to figure out where this happens. Um, it appears to be somewhere in Iowa based on, you know, where the, the camera zooms into. Some people felt it was more sort of closer to Chicago, but... Regardless, it is the Midwest. It's right? where we're a, from. <laughs> right. It is. So this it feels is our very experience. true to us. <laughs> but uh, we get a great, uh, you know, special effects shot. ILM did most of the special effects in this movie, zooming all the way down, and then uh, it matches into a big crane shot. You know, leading us down to the Clopex house and and the lights. You know, burning underneath the, the house. Uh, which, of course, awakens his next-door neighbor, Ray Peterson, played by Tom Hanks, who goes outside to investigate. And so we immediately start with this, like, fairly... I guess what we might consider a fairly common moment in suburban living, right? Your neighbors are making noise in the middle of the night. You go up outside to investigate, maybe tell them to quiet down. Um, but in Hanks's case, he is is put off. One of the, the sort of subtle, really fun things about this is that the moment anyone steps foot onto the Klopex property, like this strong wind begins to blow, <laughs> like their hair starts getting moved around, the dust is being stirred up, you know, the moment that they step onto the property. Uh, so it becomes this really great, you know, sort of running gag that, you know, the, the Klopex house is, is cursed, uh, that something is going on behind the scenes that, uh, <laughs> that you can't, uh, you can't fully understand. But it's this this great opening because there's this wonderful sense of everyday paranoia, right? And it's something that I think Hanks does a really good job of conveying in the film, at the very least. Just the the paranoia, the 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 fear of everyday living, right? That that you you have things around you at all times that are outside of your control, and there's nothing you can things do. Things you don't that. understand, things you don't know. Right, in a, in a place that you should feel like you have full control and mastery of, right? The, the master of the domain. 
but yet you don't really have that full control. Uh, I also love that this movie very quickly establishes that all of the neighbors are watching each other all the time. Yep. Because um, he looks across and Bruce Dern's character is, is awake. We don't know what time of night this is, but we can assume it's it's quite late. Um, but Bruce Dern's character is just standing in the window smoking, watching him, and Hanks knows it. So it's it's a really good opening to the film because it establishes tone, right? This sort of like, you know, a little bit of scare, a little bit of horror, but at the same time, this sort of everyday, you know, you know this place kind of thing. And I think that's one thing Dante does very well in this film is you know what this world is, right? Um, and I don't know. It just, it, it comes across really well at establishing it. <clears throat> I'm honestly surprised that they didn't really just skip that scene and just start with the paper boy scene. That seems the more obvious one to kick off on, but you know, I think Dante's decision to establish the threat of the Clopex right off the bat is a really smart one for me. And I, I think it, I think it works because it sets the, the darker, more horrific tone a little bit earlier. Um, you know, this doesn't start off perfect and then go crazy. You realize, you kind of know what you're getting into just because of the drama of that first scene. Um, so yeah, I think that works for me. Yeah, I do love that Hanks is 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 obviously, I, he's just really deeply unhappy from the very beginning of this film. Uh, I love as the paperboy's going by, uh, he throws his coffee at him. <laughs> yeah. Like the paperboy literally hits him with the paper, which I, I don't know if it was planned. I'm kind of thinking it wasn't that he would hit him with the paper, but he nails Hanks with the paper and then Hanks just throws his coffee at him. There's no chance that he's going to hit him, but it's it's just a great moment as he just in, in pure frustration just tosses his coffee. And then we get just this awesome sequence of the mundane a ridiculousness of, of, of this entire situation of living in a cul-de-sac with other people, but also of the, the little slights, the little things that you can do to annoy the people that live around you. Uh, so the, the neighbors are very quickly set up. Uh, obviously, we've already kind of seen Bruce Dern as the, the commander, the lieutenant, they call him a bunch of different stuff. We've got Walter, the old man at the end of the cul-de-sac with the best piece of property on the cul-de-sac because you always want to live on the end. And, and obviously uh, the, been there the longest, so right, he gets to yeah. have that property. Yeah. And so uh, then we get uh, Corey Feldman's character, who we never see his parents. Um, nope, they're away. At any point in the film, they are away. Uh, he is a latchkey kid of the 80s. And uh, he is, is apparently been left the directive to paint the porch while his parents are gone, which he basically completely fails to do for the entirety of the film. We see paint applied, but never in any complete form. Yeah, he's mostly just slopping it on things. I think Corey Feldman is great in this movie. I, I like Corey Feldman, though, and I always have. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of his better performances, uh, although supposedly i think there is even a clip of this from the outtakes there is a scene uh dick miller a frequent joe dante collaborator is in this film as well as a garbage man and uh there is a scene where you know 
all of the the characters in the neighborhood are, are talking to the garbage man and Corey Feldman comes up and there is a, 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 sh- a scene or a shot on YouTube where Corey Feldman is doing his Corey Feldman thing as they're planning for the scene to start <clears throat> and Dick Miller just shuts him down completely and and basically like grabs him by the shoulder and says shut the fuck up kid adults are trying to act here did you also know that something <laughs> similar happened on the set of the goonies if you watch some of the special Supposedly, stuff with that yeah. it sort of looks like richard donner wants to kill himself i don't know yeah richard donner said after that movie he'd never work with kids again yeah. women well, I mean, stop working with kids <laughs> yeah but yeah supposedly like feldman is just sort of heinous to work with but you can find that clip on youtube it's it's hilarious because Dick Miller is the quintessential working man's actor. He's there to do his job and get out and, you know, to collect his paycheck and go home. And Corey Feldman's wasting time, which he has absolutely no patience for. But so uh, in this this great sort of opening, really, it could just be considered a kind of extended montage to introduce us to all the characters. Uh, Bruce Stern, he has, a, you know, a less nice lawn a little bit farther up the cul-de-sac. He but he has the flagpole he, in he it. He puts up the flag every day. Which yeah. would totally be our father. Like, Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm, I think I remember our mother saying that at one point when we watched this film. She's like, oh, that would be you. Mm, for <laughs> you sure. have to have He's a flag-raising ceremony. <laughs> it is completely nebulous as to what military service he did. He makes constant references references uh, to Southeast Asia, so it's it's assumed that he was in Vietnam, but there's no evidence of the fact that that actually took place. Who knows? But uh, the old man's dog takes a dump on his lawn because, of course, oh, the terror of uh, having a dog poop on your lawn. Takes a dump on his lawn and he steps in it and then proceeds to run down the street in his uh, short shorts and vest to. Uh, he does you know, it again. I'm gonna catch him and staple his ass shut. One of the That's best right. lines it's a in good movie line. history. It's a good line. Um, so Corey Feldman, the latchkey kid, uh, you know Bruce Dern's character, the old man at the end of the lane, the Clopex who live next to Tom Hanks. And then we kind of focus on Hanks. He's he's watching all of this happen with no small measure of glee, just observing his neighbors going at it. And uh, we're introduced to his family. Uh, his wife played wonderfully by Carrie Fisher, one of her few late '80s roles. Uh, she was had much had moved into writing uh, in the late 1980s and 90s. Uh, did a lot of ghostwriting. Did a lot of of uh, cleanups of scripts. Some very famous rewrites. But, you know, would still act occasionally, and she is great in this as, as Hanks's you know, sort of long-suffering wife. They uh, have a I, wonderful back and forth as a couple. It feels very natural, very real. I mean, it's got the artificiality of Hollywood relationships, you know, all of most film relationships do, but it feels very real um, and, and very lived in, right? Their relationship is, doesn't feel like it just spring forth like these people feel like they've lived together for years and and that can be extremely hard to pull off uh, and it's both of them working together to make it happen but i love the sequence because he comes into the kitchen you know he just takes the sugar bowl away from his son because he's so dumping sweet it enough onto his, <laughs> that's sweet enough for you he's like dumping that onto his cereal turns the television down i mean he's just he's a typical dad right he's just like no 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 you know i, the I expected him father to... of the 1980s that right. i think every every person 
in our shoes, maybe. I mean, I hate to harp yeah. on like generational things, but you know, if you look back it's, at it's who a our parents dad. were, the boomer yeah. dad was mm-hmm. was this sort of harried, impatient guy looking forward to his next vacation. Right. Um, you know, how fast can I get into the backyard? How fast can I get into the shop? Um, you know, that kind of thing. And it and so, you know, reading through some of the background material, Hanks apparently was was very resistant to some of those aspects of the character, most specifically having a son. Uh, at this point, Hanks was was trying, seemingly at least, to position himself as kind of a leading man in the 1990s, right? He wanted to be that available, you know, I, I'd never really perceived Tom Hanks as a stud, right? He was never that kind of guy, but he didn't want to be typecast this early in his career as the, the sort of bumbling dad. And uh, so he he petitioned frequently to not have a child in the film, for it to just be him and Carrie Fisher, you know, in sort of this more modern relationship. But Dante felt very strongly that it needed he needed to be, you know, the father of a family, right? That was an important part of his character. And one that we don't see reflected in any of the other male central characters in the story, right? We never see Art's children, even though presumably he has them. Um, we never see, uh, you know, Bruce Dern's, you know, military man character is married to a much younger woman, uh, who is, is painted basically as a bimbo and the Corey Feldman character doesn't have parents, right? So <laughs> parents don't exist. So they, they needed like one kind of father figure and, and Hanks, you know, got the job. But I think he does a good job of showing the, the type of dad of, of this time period and, I also think that there were some undercurrents with his character that maybe didn't get paid off in the script, perhaps because of the writer's strike, perhaps because they just were backgrounded elements. But one thing that happens right away is, is Carrie Fisher is, is making breakfast, obviously like pancakes or something. And she's working very hard at it and she's doing all these things. And then she just goes, are you even going to eat this? And he's <laughs> like, Oh no, no, I got that stomach thing. And she's like, Ugh. and she just stops what she's doing completely. You know, she's making this breakfast that no one is going to eat, which I think is just <laughs> again, perfect kind of harried mom of the 1980s trying desperately to be the housewife of, of America past and going, I'm doing all of this for nothing. Why am I even wasting my time? <laughs> which I think is great. You know, this is a post Mr. Mom world, right? Where, you know, the woman didn't have to do all of this stuff anymore. And, and I think it's funny that the film has its own little comment. But I, the fact that he is taking this vacation away from work, he has a stomach thing, and where Hank's sort of motions to, it seems very ulcerish, right? Like he's got yeah. an ulcer, right? He's stressed, right? He is stressed in his work life. He's stressed in his home life. And I think it is an undercurrent component of the character that all of this this paranoia that he embraces is because he's he's kind of a guy looking for some semblance of purpose in his life right like and he is just stressed beyond belief and doesn't know what to do uh, i think the barbecue grill in the back is also a component of that yeah. um I, I feel like the mention of the tools the the promise to the wife that he'll work on the barbecue grill which we get a glimpse of in one scene that it's just it's like a brick fire pit barbecue pit that has just fallen into disrepair and and he's promising to fix it you know i I think it's this idea we're being shown all of these elements that this is a guy that just 
is kind of listless. He's floating through life. He doesn't have anything. And he's not really trying to get anything. He's just sort of dissatisfied, uh, which I think is another very insightful satirical component of the 1980s, right? Yeah. The 1980s I... was a time of tremendous unrest in the United States. Um, you know, we had a lot of political back and forth. You know, we'd just come out of the Reagan era and, and, and a lot of people were, you know, really happy with the Reagan era. There were a lot of people who were really unhappy with the Reagan era and there's just all this malaise and, and discontent. And I think that he is meant to embody that discontent in the viewer, right? Like you feel this way too, don't you? Right? Like you don't know why you get out of bed in the morning. You don't have purpose. You don't have goals. You're just sort of existing. And that's not very satisfying, is it? And I think that pays off at the end. But I think we're just hit with a bunch of really quick pieces of information here. And then Dante, because I think I think Dante's films are, are generally very good at letting the audience sort of draw their own conclusions, right? He's, he's not one to beat you over the head with things most of the time. Um, and I think that's what we're getting here, right? It's just the, that, that 1980s dad condition and, and Hank sort of captures it really well, but it's not something that the film spends a tremendous amount of time on. Right. Um, it just sort of has it as a background element throughout most of it. But I, I love the scene. It does a great thing. It does a great job establishing the family right off the bat and and sort of where where they are and what they're doing and and Hanks is pitch perfect like it is obvious why he was on his rise during this time period um i don't know if he has a misstep in this film even though with its wildly shifting tones and and even from scene to scene moment to moment he's being asked to display a lot of different uh traits and, and character beats i think he just nails it pretty much across the board like i I, it kind of makes me yearn for this tom hanks again because he's so assured as an actor now and he's so good i kind of want to see him this raw again where he's just kind of feeling his way through it but doing it perfectly even though you can tell he's just kind of finding it as he goes i would like to see him break out of the forrest gump style roles because I feel like he's been living that that life for so long, you know, doing the Oscar bids, doing the the emotional pictures. That I I miss funny Tom Hanks, um, specifically Agreed. this movie. Yeah, I'm really. I mean, you know, the the Hanks trifecta. I love Big. I, I really do. I, I think he's great in Big. But really, you know, Big Burbs, Joe versus the volcano. I mean, these are some of my favorite Hank's performances, and they are his his weird ones, right? The the knockoffs. But so there's obvious unrest in his household. Like nobody is happy in in the household. Like they're not terrible, but they're obviously not, you know, dreaming their way through life. But all of that gets very quickly interrupted by. The introduction of uh, Rick Ducommon, right? I believe that is his name. Rest his soul. Yes. Uh, so 
Rick Dukamen is one of those guys that you've you've seen Rick Dukamen. You have seen a movie with Rick Dukamen in it. Um, I would say he's probably, I don't know about most famous, but I certainly, the first time I remember seeing him is he played one of the two drunk guys in Groundhog Day. <clears throat> the the guys that he drives across the train tracks and uh you know he was just he was a great canadian oh yeah comedian. don't drive on the railroad tracks don't well, drive that's on what the i happen to agree tracks. with uh and he is just in many ways he dominates this film like this is kind of his movie uh he is just a, a font of of lines constant unceasing and and he plays the sort of final neighbor of this this piece the annoying um, neighbor trope exactly he is the annoying always in your business always at your house always eating your food always taking your stuff neighbor trope he's he's the homer simpson <clears throat> that's kind of how he he strikes me is that he is just every kind of terrible neighbor you know borrowing yeah. things taking things yeah uh, his his comfort level in their home is just remarkable. Again, you know, we could talk about the comedy of this film and, you know, sort of it's, it's good and bad components. Um, he is the most overtly comedic presence in the movie. Just, he feels sort of, I mean, in a lot of ways he feel, I, I don't want to say this is an insult, but he's kind of discount John Candy, you know, like I could easily see John Candy in this role you know, sort of nailing this, but he occupies that same sort of headspace for me where he's just the, he's a little bit wild. He's a little crazy. He's always got a story. He's always got some little piece of background information to offer because he he's in the know. But to give you an example of the humor of this film, right? He's at their house. He's eating the breakfast that Tom Hanks didn't want. <laughs> Uh, which apparently the wife completed for him because she had stopped baking it. And then when he showed up, she finished it. And then he ate the pancakes and the sausage. He finishes off one bottle of syrup. So he gets up from the table and he goes to get more food. And and this is all being shot very expertly in this, this like, you know, they're maintaining the, the, the three, the triangle of characters as they move through the scenes. He goes to the refrigerator and he pulls out another bottle of syrup he pulls out leftover ribs <laughs> and a whole pineapple. <laughs> These are the three food items that this dude collects and then brings back to the table to begin eating. All while right? not breaking his stream of consciousness talk about the he other just people in the neighborhood. He keeps going and it's, it's staggeringly funny. You know, what is he going to do with the pineapple? How will he prepare it? How does it fit in with these meal choices that he's made? But there it is. And it's it's great. Uh, and Hanks is, is marvelous. He's just, he's the skeptic and the cynic of the group, even though he, he desperately wants to believe that something is wrong. He also is the least likely to to embrace that wrongness. And, and Corey Feldman's character actually states it later and says that he doesn't want to believe because if it's true, then he'd have to do something about it. Right. And that is something that he won't do. Right. He is. And that his is character is typified much, by his inaction. Right? That is very much a critique of, of the 80s adult, if you mm -hmm. ask me. I mean, if you yep. look at some of the 
the things that happened, you know, socially since the 1980s, it's that idea of I'm going to pretend nothing is wrong so that I don't have to deal with this. And that is that's right. just such a beautiful little little critique that I think a lot of people missed. Yeah, it's it, again, it's very subtle. I mean, this is, you know, Matt Groening is dreaming up The Simpsons around this time period. And it, it, you know, now we would call them the boomer dads, right? They're the, the you know, the boomer generation fathers who are, as you said, harried and, and, you know, either disrespected in their careers or not find satisfaction in the jobs that they're being asked to do. And so they, they just have this, I don't want to be involved. Yeah. You know, I, I'd rather not be involved in this. Like, go deal with the problems. I'm just going to be over here doing what I want to do. And Hanks is grabbing that perfectly, even though that's that's not necessarily him. You know, but as an actor, he, he seemingly understands it. Um, I, I I think this movie excels in its smaller moments. It's got its big set pieces, you know, the stuff with the Klopex, the explosions, of which there are several. But I, I think the thing that sets the burbs apart and what makes it so memorable for me are all of these little conversations between the characters and how they're done. Because the movie gives them space, right? So, you know, we immediately transition, you know, people have gone into, you know, we don't really, we don't really know what time of year this is. Presumably it's summertime because, you know, Corey Feldman's at home and and not doing anything and his parents are on vacation and, you know, his, uh, Hanks' wife, you know, he's decided to take vacation, but he just wants to stay home. He doesn't want to go anywhere. He doesn't want to travel. He just wants to be in his house, in his bathrobe, doing quote unquote nothing. And of course, that gives the space for this rear window scenario where he's got all this time to just observe what's going on around him. And, and but I, I love that, you know, we, we get this little discussion of the toolbox, right? <laughs> and, and all of the neighbors are watching each other. Bruce Dern is observing these two guys hanging out together. Everybody's kind of checking out Bruce Dern's wife because she's, you know, super hot. And... And, you know, Hanks is like, hey, did you see these tools I got? And he brings out this mm-hmm. brand new toolbox, Can't never been touched. And, and he just pops it down. He's, he's like, ah, what are you going to do with those? Are you going to build something? And he's like, ah, maybe. I don't know. And then he mentions getting an electric garage door opener, which, again, big 80s thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, open your garage door, you know, magically, which I find it completely, again, subtly ironic. Who is the only family on the block that has an electric garage door open. Yeah, the Clopex. <laughs> the Clopex are the only ones that have one. Uh, I think it's it's such another little nod to American suburban living, right? You always want what the one neighbor has. You know, that neighbor got a blue mailbox. Well, I'm going to get a blue mailbox. Um, and so they're having these little conversations. And finally, after the Clopex have apparently lived there for about a month, that's what we're told. Uh, one of them appears on the porch during the daytime. Uh, the son has told us that they're nocturnal. They only come out at night and uh, that they seem to be digging in their backyards. Yeah, so the and we learned that move. Corey Feldman's character, Ricky Butler, has been spreading rumors about the Klopex. So it's sort of suggested that a lot of the suspicion about them was was done by him. Right. Yeah. He He's obviously like... He's a pot stirrer because we find out very quickly that, you know, Corey Feldman's character, Ricky Butler, he is fascinated 
by the members of his neighborhood and he loves watching them. Uh, they are his entertainment as these, these adults fumble their way around the neighborhood and try and, you know, accomplish meaningless things. So he's endlessly, endlessly entertained by them, even to the point that he brings his girlfriend over and instead of watching TV or going to a movie, he just plops a, a lawn chair down on his porch and says, just watch this, you know, watches these people make these ridiculous choices and, you know, the scene with the, where, where the Klopex come out, we get these great musical beats. Jerry Goldsmith's score for this is, is not exceptional, but it's very good. I like, I like it. It's, I, it's, yeah. The first Klopex that we see is played by Courtney Gaines, who is from uh, uh, Children of the Corn fame. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've always liked that kid. Um, it's ironic to call him a kid. He's older than I am. But I... <laughs> I love his first appearance. I love how they're all sort of watching and making him uncomfortable because it reminds right. me of when I go outside. Yeah, he's just he's just coming to get the mail, right? He's doing what any normal person would do, and and everybody's just staring him down. And and then we get these the first of our Western homages, as as these two bumbling idiots approach the porch of a home with the intention of ringing the doorbell and asking for them, you know, for who's inside. We get this Inyo, Inyo Morricone style. The, the wind kicks up and everybody gets a slow push in, a slow dolly in, and then finally culminating on the dock. <laughs> so it's Walter's so dog on the end. They I don't know how they got that dog to squint, but they did. And and they just zoom in on the dog's face. And it reminds me of the uh, every frame of painting video on visual comedy. Yes. And how like like you know a, a slow push in on an unexpected thing can be and comedic. Dante and it's, is it's really perfect. good at that. He is really good at doing just comedic stuff with the camera on yes. his films. Yeah, he is a comedy director. He actually directs comedy. The comedy, you know, we've harped on this before, and I'm sure we will again, but most modern comedies, because it's so heavily influenced by SNL and so heavily populated by SNL actors. It's just most, one camera and people talking. Yeah, it's just it's people talking into the camera and being funny, which can often be funny, right? I mean, like Will Ferrell has a, has a, a shtick and he does it and if you find that funny you will enjoy his films but there's nothing else for you there where you you have someone like Edgar Wright who actually understands how to use the techniques of filmmaking to create humor and even if you don't even without a funny script or a character saying something funny on camera he can get you laughing he can make you laugh just by the way that he uses the camera and Dante is very much in that same way. My favorite, I, I it may be my favorite moment in the film and, and I have a lot of favorite moments in this, I film. Do too. <laughs> but my favorite moment may be when right after uh, Ray Peterson's dog has dug, dug up a femur bone from the ground and brought it over to them. And I love that art, uh, Rick to commons character plays catch or plays fetch with the bone without even realizing what he's doing. <laughs> until later but they realize it's him and then they say this is walter's leg and they both just start screaming Those crash zooms and the so crash zooms back funny. and forth it's fantastic i mean it, it's the kind of thing that gets satirized now where like a, you know a youtube 
video will be like, ah, and it'll just crash zoom on them over and but over again. If you again, think but, about it, YouTube you know. videos are doing some really interesting things with editing and humor. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen in a long time. Right. And and Dante just is willing to lean into those. They're filmmaking techniques that a lot of directors have walked away from because they're so overt, right? Like a crash zoom, especially one that repeats it over and over and over again in a single (laughs) scene is is really rare because it draws attention to itself. And one, you know, most modern schools of directing will tell you that the one thing you should never do is draw attention to yourself. Right. The camera should exist in this space that shows us in a perverted way everything we want to see but yet doesn't ever remind us that we're we're observing and you know dante is is from a school of directing that is totally fine with that but yeah that set of crash zooms i i I love that moment i think it's brilliant but so this porch scene is is absolutely fantastic they they use the door knocker which is this huge ornate door knocker. The house is 669, and of course the nine falls down and it becomes 666, <laughs> another little lovely physical gag. But uh, they knock again, and a bunch of bees come out of the wall. <laughs> and, you know, again, I, you know, I love that Dante shoots this in the wide. I think a lot of modern directors would keep all this very tight on the actors. But it looks so ridiculous. I love that Rick Common. apparently the bees flew up his pants. And he just is standing in the middle of the street, like, trying to shake out his pants. It's <laughs> it's just brilliantly done. It's such a silly moment. Um, just ridiculously ridiculously shot and, and so fun. But eventually they're, they're freed of the bees by uh, Bruce Stern's character spraying them down with water. I think they're gone. <laughs> I think they're gone. And then, uh, of course, there's one left in, in Art's mouth, which is great. But, you know, so there, the threat, the idea that this has now become a, a war, a kind of battle between them and people that they don't know and have never met is is just the, the battle lines are, are sort of immediately drawn. And, and I love that because neighborhoods are full of invisible slights. Right, where you take offense to something your neighbor has done, even though you don't know anything about the context of what's going on. And, you know, these bees falling out of the wall is nothing to do with the Clopex, right? It's just something in the house, but yet, you of know, course, now they would have bees. Yeah, terrible now, Clopex. Yeah, they're now the villains. Um, so, you know, the next couple of sequences are really just kind of establishing this little cadre of Hanks's character, uh, Rick DeCommon and Bruce Stern, sort of trying to come up with some kind of plan. But the next one, as, as they sneak out to like smoke cigars together, again, a very 80s dad thing to go do, I suppose, we, we get the first real taste of, of the type of satire that Dante is interested in here. And I, I love, it, it all kind of starts off, they're, they're walking together, and Art, Rick DeCommon, you know, again, sort of launches into a story, and it is the story of, was it Stan? Uh, uh, it was Skip. Skip, Skip the Ice Cream Man, uh, who ran the He's, soda fountain. Yep, soda jerk. And uh, so this this parlays directly into uh, the screenwriter for this, Dana Olson, said that a lot of his inspiration came from his own upbringing in a very sort of run-of-the-mill, everything's normal, suburban town. 
but yet he said every once in a while you would hear, you know, librarian kills family, right? You know, mm-hmm. you'd see that in the in in the newspaper somewhere. And he always sort of knew that on the fringes of this seemingly perfect and dull existence, there was there was something else happening. And so we get a similar story here about um, Skip, right? And so Dukaman, I love how the story opens because they start walking together and he says, ah, I remember a time, time when you didn't have to lock your doors. Everybody knew each other. You know, like this this idealized place and time in America that, that really never existed. Never existed. Exactly. Never. He says, and he says, I must have been nine or ten, right? So we're, we're talking like 25 years prior uh, at most that this uh, that this brilliant and fantastical time existed. But this is also another... Another thing that I I recognize in in people who are now our parents' age, who are now boomers, effectively, um, this idea of like being nostalgic for that past mm-hmm. and really feeling like the world was a different place. I don't see that as much in in younger generations, and I didn't see it as much in older generations. But this specific group, boy, that is just exactly what you would hear like from our parents is you know it's not like it used to be right and i think it's because you know the the 15 to 18 year period post world war ii all things considered in terms of financial outlook of the country people being able to get work it was a fairly rosy time right it wasn't there was plenty going on in the country that was terrible you know the civil rights movement happened in the 1960s for a reason but I think it's very easy to look back on those those years if you were growing up in the United States and saying that was a really good time period, <laughs> right? If you know, because a you get the childhood nostalgia anyway, right? Like where yeah. you know your childhood, your general, you know, is, is you know unless it's really terrible, which many people unfortunately do experience. But you know, you're you're you generally sort of hold on to the good stuff from your childhood in the first place. So if you had a pretty decent time period, I, I think a lot of it also had to do with media at the time period, right? Like Lassie, right? Like that that idea of the idealized family sort of hanging together on the fringes of society and making it work and, and you know scrappy pull yourself up by your bootstraps storytelling you know the kind of stuff that was designed to sell dish soap to housewives i mean that's really what it was but i think that a lot of people look back on that and say like oh that's how things really were when obviously it wasn't so there's there's a lot of no uh there's a lot of factors that go into it i think and 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 this movie's playing on those ideas too and this scene is is the evidence for it but so they tell the story of Skip, the ice cream soda fountain man, uh, who murders his own family, and it unfortunately is a very hot summer. And so as they decompose in the basement, people are, are smelling things, and they don't want to be insulting. They don't want to, you know, don't want to step into Skip's territory, right? But you know, eventually there's like a fire, so the cops have to go in and they find the family, and, and Skip, you know, has has done it. He's the one who snapped and murdered his family. And so I think there is this, you know, in the film, this acknowledgement and undercurrent of the seemingly normal guy who breaks and breaks bad, right? And again, I think it's a not so subtle sort of play with what's going on with 
Tom Hanks's character, right? Like Hanks is at this breaking point. He doesn't necessarily realize it, but he's there and he needs something to fight against. He needs something to rally around and, and the Clopex become that. But I love the way that the scene tags out, which is that Corey Feldman draws him in and then scares the bejesus out of him. <laughs> uh, I, it's a wonderful moment. And the way that Hanks just kind of clutches at his chest, you know, like a, a like clutching for his pearls, you know, it's like, <gasps> you know, it's, it's such a wonderful little tag to the it's, scene. And, oh, it's so It's good. also a really, really nice lesson in scene blocking that kind of surprised me a little bit because it's, the way that the shots are set up, you're sort of drawn into Art's story, even though you know it is Art and it's he's probably full of shit. At the same time, you know, the camera kind of does those those low shots from like Ricky's perspective. And then you have, you know, um, these really intimidating shots of, of Art as he's telling the story. And he's doing such a wonderful job to telling the story in the first place. And then you have Hank sort of coming in up behind and and joining the scene and then by the time the story comes to the scare the jump scare it you're so invested in it it's really effective and it's really really funny yeah i i love that hanks is kind of the outsider in the story i I don't know if it's supposed to be because art thinks he already knows the story so he's really just telling it to Corey feldman or if this is some kind of setup between the two of them to to further screw with hanks it feels like a little bit of both um, but Hanks is, is very much like backgrounded in this scene. It's shot very well, as you said, like he's constantly shifting the camera to keep all three of them, you know, in frame and, and moving together until the very end when it pulls around and we get them framed at the Clopex as he finishes the story, right? So as he's finalizing the story and talking about the family being dead, which he's already explained, I love that he says it twice, Right. He emphasizes the family being found because they're decomposing two times in the story. And the second time he mentions it, as Hank has separated from the group, he does so with the Klopex house framed in the background, uh, which is a nice little piece of visual reinforcement that, you know, bodies are in the basement. Right. Which, of course, becomes their driving force. Right. They continue to become obsessed with the idea that there's something in the basement, which is reinforced by their observations. You know, they see the Klopex working in the basement etc but you know they they then you know sort of scare the bejesus out of hanks in a a beautiful way and and he departs um i I don't know there's a lot of like friendly joshing and stuff in this movie that I, i think works pretty well i also absolutely love that hanks goes back inside and completely forgets about his dog like his dog just comes and goes in this movie they never talk about him uh except when he's relevant to the scene it's 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 lovely but then we get uh, a scene that they have admitted to being fully improvised by Hanks and Carrie Fisher, which is the Jeopardy scene. And I, I love this scene. I wish it was two minutes longer easily. Just watching Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher take notes and watch Jeopardy together is so lovely. And, and again, they, they do such a good job at feeling like a real couple. Yeah. Right. Like people who have been together for a long time. And I think, you know, a lot of it is, is, is certainly Hanks, but unfortunately I think Carrie Fisher, because her, her fame was basically built on star Wars and 
I love Star Wars, but Star Wars, all of them in their own ways, except maybe Save Empire Strikes Back, which is just a, a fine film. All of those movies are bad. Yeah. Like, they're bad. And, and they know they're bad. And it's okay that they're bad. But you don't go to Star Wars for great performance. It just doesn't happen. They're yeah. not there. There are some moments, right? I think Mark Hamill grounds his character in some really cool ways. By the time we get to Return of Jedi, he's, he's very cool. Uh, Harrison Ford, of course, is just Harrison Ford. You know, he his investment... My wife, my family. His investment <laughs> in the projects diminishes as it goes on, and that's fine. Uh, you know, again, I think he sort of hit his peak with Empire Strikes Back in terms of Harrison Ford gives a shit, and, and then it kind of just tapers off from there. But, you know, Carrie Fisher, you know, was unfortunately saddled with a character that, that I, I, I'm never, I, I don't think George Lucas ever really knew what to do with her in those movies. Um, I think George Lucas is afraid of women. <laughs> I think he yeah, yeah, is. might be. Yeah, it's very possible. Um, but Carrie Fisher is actually a great actress. Uh, She's postcards, uh, postcards from the Edge. Um, Another great movie that is criminally <coughs> underrated, and I know you're probably going to make a face when I say this, but Drop Dead Fred. She's fabulous in that movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, that would be a good one to visit on this podcast. Yes, uh, it's it's on the list for sure. Uh, anything uh, with Rick Mayall. Yeah. Because most of his stuff never hit here. But he's a brilliant comedic actor. Uh, Drop Dead Fed is, is a wonderful, wonderful movie. No, I think all of Carrie Fisher's acting output in the 80s and early 90s before she kind of semi-retired from, from show business in that manner, uh, I think is some of her best work. And, and this feels very centered, very grounded, um, and, and in a way that I, you don't really see out of her in a lot of her work. And, and, you know, cause she's normally playing people who are kind of on the fringes. Her character in Drop Dead Fed's a great example, right? She's like this health nut who lives on a boat and smokes while she it's does power so walking. It's incredibly and, neurotic. And... Yeah. You know, just, it, it's, it's a wonderfully layered character who doesn't get a lot of screen time, but, but definitely sort of is memorable. Um, but so they're watching, they get interrupted by art and, and now they have decided to, you know, begin their investigation, if you want to call it that, into the, the Clopex. Corey Feldman is, is introducing his girlfriend to the neighborhood, telling us once again how much he loves the street that he lives on and how, how enjoyable it is to just watch these people as they go through all of these ridiculous shenanigans. But uh, Art gets uh, Hanks's attention and, and has him you know come out to play, basically, which becomes a, a running gag in the movie that uh, you know this is not not dissimilar from a neighborhood of uh, or a, a, a group of neighborhood boys who are just up to no good, you know, taking their bikes out after dark and <laughs> riding through the ravine and you know kicking cans and knocking over mailboxes mm-hmm. and you know all of these other rose gold moments. Uh, but in essence, they are, are hatching their plot to, to get at who the Klopex are. And, and then we get our first real confirmation that the Klopex are doing strange things, right? That it's not unfounded. We saw it briefly at the very beginning of the film, but we didn't have any context for what was going on. Uh, but this time, the Klopex fire something up in the basement, and 
Dante, you know, we we talked a little bit during go, during the Ghost Rider episode about how Mark Stephen Johnson has like no idea how to shoot something that's scary, right? He just no conceptualization of how to make a scene scary with what you are doing. Uh, Joe Dante has zero problems with that, right? Joe Dante can make something very scary if he wishes to. And in uh, fact, which, this this makes mundane things scary, which I right. Love. Yes, very good. I mean, like, think of it in Gremlins, right? What are the things that that movie teaches you to be afraid of? No. <laughs> um, it makes you scared of water. <laughs> and And it nighttime. makes you scared of, of eating at night. And, uh, Those yeah. are the two most terrifying things that can happen in the Gremlins films, right? And that is is evidence of how Joe Dante perhaps better than anyone else can take something completely mundane and everyday thing that you would never be afraid of. That little stair machine that helps old people get up the stairs, that little, <laughs> that little seat, you would never need to be afraid of that. It's something grandma uses. Yes, you no, would. it will hurl you through a window to your death. Phoebe Cates's father crawls down the chimney as Santa Claus and dies, right? <laughs> The most mundane thing in the world, most horrifying thing in the world as a background element for a character in a movie. It's great, right? And again, a lot of that is coming from Chris Columbus and, and his writing. But Dante's but somebody ability had to, to put it on the screen. Exactly. Dante had to bring it to life. And, and he is capable of doing that with delicious aplomb. And, and that's exactly what happens here, right? These guys are just hanging out and then there's lights and sounds coming from the basement at the Clopex. Um, and it's loud and it's, it's big, right? It's, it's noticeable. It's not a subtle thing, which I kind of like, you know, that Dante's kind of putting his foot down. Like, no, these guys aren't completely insane. There is stuff going on over there that is suspicious, which is reinforced here as the automatically opening garage door. <laughs> I was watching this with my wife. She just found this seat delightful. She's like, what is this? Who does this? Uh, the garage door opens and they, they pull their car down the driveway to deposit the trash in the trash cans. And it's it's Courtney Gaines again. Uh, so we haven't seen any of the other members of the Klopek family yet, just him. But they're like behind trash cans watching. Tom it's... Hanks's little line after that ends, I've never seen someone take their garbage to the end of the driveway and beat the hell out of it. <laughs> beat the hell out of it. I've stick. never I've, seen that. I I've love never seen that. That it's line. line, it's, it's a really so good perfect. Line. It's a it's a great line, but it's it's definitely framed as you know they're they're moving a body. You know it's it's this you know big unwieldy trash bag, and he's he's having to shove it into the can, and he's beating it down with a rake to make sure it gets in the can completely. Uh, it, it's it's just it's a lovely little you know yes this is strange and weird and unexpected. Um, it's it's a great little scene and and further reinforces why these guys are or, or why they think they should be scared uh, of this family. And it's 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 great. The lights flashing, you know, it's getting ready to storm. So we've got lightning as everything's happening. It's it's really good. It reminds me of some of the, you know, the 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 horrific scenes from Gremlin in terms of its lighting and and everything that's going on you know again Dante's a capable horror director and this would be a scene out of any you know sort of horror film you know this the bodies being dragged to the street that kind of thing 
Uh, but I love it. It's so silly because he just backs the car back into the garage and closes the door again. It just makes no sense. Uh, but that that making no sense is what drives our it's what drives the characters to continue you know trying to figure out what's going on and I and you know how many great. of us how many of us stick our heads out of the back door or peek through the front curtains and watch our neighbors and go what the hell are you doing you know it's it's that little that little callback to we do watch our neighbors we do watch the people around us and we do wonder what they're up to. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I have my fair share of weird neighbors. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's all about attribution, right? We're always trying to attribute character to behavior, right? It's, it's sort of what we're trained to do as humans. So when we see somebody do something, we want to understand why they did it. Um, and and that puzzle is, is infinitely fascinating to us as people. And it's why I think, again, we're still basically in the first sort of chunk of this film, and this is why it works so well is that the mysteries it sets up are pretty exceptional. Um, I love that the scene ends with Corey Feldman saying rain delay. Right? Like, <laughs> the show's on hold because of the rain. Everybody's going to go back inside. What a bummer. Um, you know, this is a pretty much a 90, uh, right at a hundred minute movie, I guess. And, and so we've really just passed through act one, right? That's the end. And our characters are, are firm now in their belief that something's going on with the Clopex. And hopefully the trash will be the evidence. But that's why the next morning kicks off with a wonderful little scene. And this is this is a, a peak Joe Dante scene for me. Like, he loves doing this. Where he, we introduce a couple characters very quickly and they just have kind of an what feels like an interaction that doesn't connect to anything else. Right, this interaction doesn't feel like it matters because it's two garbage men. One of them who is wearing a rainbow patch on his uniform, <laughs> trying to convince the other guy that he needs to go to some kind of self-help guru seminar that will change his life. And and uh, you know, there's like mission of laying on of hands and, and all of this religious terminology. It sounds a little bit like a cult and. You know, and it's Robert Picardo and Dick Miller. That's what we have to say. So it's Robert Picardo, Dick Miller, frequent, you know, Joe Dante flyers having this conversation. Dick Miller's loading the garbage in. He's just trying to do his job. And then here's Robert Picardo just sort of peeping in his ear about this self-help guru that he has to go see. It's a wonderful in medias res moment because you just pick up in the middle of this conversation. You have no idea what it's about, but it's funny. It just, it's really good. It's perfect. And then, you know, the neighbors come calling because the trash, they, they need to observe it. They need to see what's in the trash. And so they're dumping it out in the street. I love that it's there for literally the rest of the film. <laughs> for the remainder of the movie, that trash stays right there in the middle of the road. No one picks it up. No one attempts to throw it away. All they do is just leave it, and I, it's fantastic. But so they're going through the trash in the hopes of finding some kind of you know dirt on the Clopex, but it's it's not there. It's gone, right? There's nothing out of the ordinary. So I love it because Art goes in first, and he's dumping through the trash. Then you see him inside the trash truck going through it. Then Bruce Dern runs out, and and you naturally expect that Bruce Dern is going to get him out of the truck. Oh, how could he be doing this? But no, 
Bruce Dern half shaven, right? He'd only shaved half of his face. The rest of it is still covered in shaving cream. Jumps into the truck with him and begins searching. <laughs> then Hanks, who is in the middle of a conversation, a conversation, quote unquote, an argument with his wife over uh, what's going on and how he's he does, he's having a great time. He's enjoying his vacation, sleeping in. The son comes in and tells him that everybody's looking through the trash and he dead stops, right? What? <laughs> and then he immediately follows out as well. It's such a great moment. Oh my gosh. Like Hanks just turns like, your mom and I are having a conversation. What? What? It's, it's so good. Um, and, and so, of course, he, he joins in and, and he's looking around, but... You know, Picardo mentions the Supreme Court ruling that trash is public domain. Nobody can get in trouble for looking through it. And and I just love that Dick Miller gets to be the straight man, right? Where he's just like, you know, I'm just trying to do my job, right? I'm just the trash guy. Uh, Dern's throwing the whole, uh, you know, uh, my, my taxes pay your salary <laughs> crap. Oh, my God. How many boomer parents continue to throw that out there? It's peak uh, boomer parents. That's why this works parents, so man. well. Like my taxes, but yeah, oh god. <clears throat> but anyway, so you know, he's the one who says you're gonna pick up all this trash. And Dick Miller's like, I pick trash and I pick up trash in cans. I don't pick it up off the ground. That's not my job. So here again, the scene seems absurd on the surface, and it is. But what we really get here is another little '80s breakdown of really social status right like you're a garbage man you're nothing so you're gonna do what i tell you i live in this neighborhood i am also nothing but i'm more nothing than you are and you need to do what i say and just these groups clashing at every level right and i i love it it's so good um you know it's I guess you could say it's Dante-esque satire, right? It's it's the type of satire that Dante does consistently in his movies. Yeah. Uh, Gremlins 2, the new batch, has tons of this in it, you know, where, you know, Billy is this, you know, he was kind of king of the hill in Kingsford Falls. After the Gremlins thing, he goes to New York. He's a nobody again. We've got uh, John Glover's, uh, oh gosh, what is his name? Mr. Mr. Crunch, what is his name in that movie? He's uh, he's supposed to be a Donald Trump analog, basically. Um, But you know, so he's at the top of the social. There's all this social pecking order stuff in it, and and we really are getting all of that here. But you know, I just I I don't know. There's a lot of really cool little things. I love that Picardo has that rainbow patch, and he's wearing like a tie dye shirt underneath his uniform. Like there's all just, just these little characterization. things. There's just a lot yeah. of, of unexpected characterization, which is why it surprised me that critics thought the characters were thin because yeah. they are, they yeah. are very much influenced by the stock characters that, that inhabit every single neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's a lot of richness to, you know, the costuming choices, um, some of the actors, you know, the, the way that, um, you know, their mannerisms and just the performance that they deliver, it adds some extra dimension to these characters that I just, I think it's fantastic. 
it, it's it's pretty exceptional, man. He's he's doing a lot with very little, right? And I think that could be sort of the pieces here is that Dante, you know, this is a low budget picture. 18 million is, is a lot, but it wasn't a ton in 89. And I, I think that he's just making choices about where he can invest his time and energy to get the movie accomplished and, and keep, you know, things moving forward. Cause it's a pretty swift moving film. There's not a lot of cruft in this movie. And what cruft is there is usually there in service of trying to help us understand these characters a little better. Um, but I love that his side characters, they always have something, right? Even if they are these, these, you know, people off to the side, they always have something that you can latch onto to remember them. You know, Walter's got his toupee and his dog. Um, you know, Art has his, his, he's always kind of dressed flamboyantly, which I kind of like. Uh, and I think that's paid off at the end of the movie when his, his wife gets home and we only really see her in that wide shot, but she's got this like pink taffeta dress on in the middle of the night um you know that he's got this kind of she buys his clothes basically um because he's always wearing like purples and pinks and you know there's a lot of bowling shirts yeah it's just it's really interesting um you know how the characters are dressed it feels realistic right it doesn't feel overly staged but um you know at the same time it's it's obviously been very carefully considered uh, but the, the next complication really is that Queenie, the uh, Walter's dog, uh, shows up sort of seemingly abandoned, right? Uh, running around now, interesting side note. I don't know if you saw this piece of, of trivia floating around or not, but this is the same dog that was used in silence of the lambs. <laughs> That's it, is the, it is the exact same dog right it's the same dog actor sure. uh, which i thought was was pretty hilarious um that's uh you know just they would cross those worlds but uh but so walter has has apparently gone missing and queenie was forgotten about which seems unlikely uh, so they, they basically break into our, into Walter's home, which again, there's a ton of neighbors breaking into neighbors houses and stuff in this movie. Uh, but they break in and, uh, they find signs of a struggle, right? A chair knocked over, the TV's left on and, uh, and art begins uh, stealing things. That is the best part of them going into Walter's house is that he picks yeah. up an ashtray and shoves it in his pocket He's and Tom Hanks says stuff. do you want it do you want to not steal that <laughs> right do you want to not steal from our neighbor art um but we also get our first uh well not maybe not our first there was a he, the son was watching a cartoon earlier but one another you know another Dante staple are his characters watching television and what they're watching on television, contextualizing what we are meant to be seeing. Yeah. And so uh, on the, the, the TV is an old Bela Lugosi horror film, right? From, from the early days of the Universal Monsters. And, and so we, you know, we have this black and white horror film playing. Uh, and there's another great sequence coming up in a few minutes with you know, Tom Hanks as he falls into despondency in the film watching a, a bunch of, of horror classics. And so Dante loves contextualizing his own films with references to other films on TVs. 
Uh, it happens a ton in Explorers. In Explorers, they uh, watch uh, This Island Earth and War of the Worlds, uh, you know, famous films about, you know, alien technology intruding upon man and doing damage. And, uh, and then, of course, that Explorers has the fake film uh, called Star Killer, uh, an obvious reference to the original name of Luke Skywalker, mm-hmm. uh, played by Robert Picardo, where they, they interrupt that movie on uh, a drive-in screen. And, and so he, like, he, he loves doing that. It happens in Gremlins as well. They're watching a movie at Christmas time. And, and uh, isn't it a, they're watching a, It's a Wonderful Life in that one, right? I think so. I think I'd have to watch it again, but it's yeah, just it's, it's a so Dante. Long. Oh yeah, it's it's been a while for me for Gremlins one, uh, but it's just a Dante staple, you know, to to have his characters watching classic film. But so the, basically, the neighbors realize that Walter is gone and he's left behind his toupee, um, which is something that an old man would never do. Is what they say. You never leave the house without your hair. Um, Art goes immediately to the fridge <laughs> begins pilfering food and uh, then breaks a plate and it's it's just a, a couple of really great comedic beats um, with uh, Corey Feldon slamming through the door and then again you know Hanks even though he's at the center of all of this winds up being you know I guess we could call the voice of reason as he pushes everybody out of the house and then leaves <laughs> basically a Walter, ransom note. I have your dog. Walter, I have your dog. Uh, the, the neighborly ransom note underneath his door. And uh, and then drops the toupee back in the mail slot, which again comes comes back later in the film. Um so things are, are escalating, right? And I think that Dante does a good job of these little escalations right this is probably the biggest overt one that walter is missing and they don't know where he's gone and so oh he lives next to the clopex maybe they were involved but really again he stays firmly in this like this this is really little stuff that's happening right nothing huge has taken place yet nothing overtly terrifying or overtly evil but it, it just keeps escalating and a lot of it has to do with the perception of the neighbors themselves and what they think is happening so Art becomes obsessed with the idea that they're uh, uh, Satanists, right? <laughs> that this is some sort of this is some sort of cult that is is committing human sacrifices. He has some kind of book that he's pulled from somewhere that has a bunch of you know pictures of human what a, sacrifice. What a fantastic horror movie trope! The library research scene. Right, exactly, and we kind of subvert it here. They're in his they're in Tom Hanks's basement, and. He's trying to explain all of the terrible, you know, Satanistic things that are probably happening. And I just, I love Hanks in this scene because he's just put his fingers in his ears and he's Ray, just not listening. Ray, you're chanting. You're chanting. I want to kill everyone. <laughs> Satan is good. Satan is our pal. Satan which comes back pal. in that dream sequence. That does. Oh my yeah. gosh. So funny. Uh, apparently that entire scene as well was totally improvised, uh, not written, just just Ray DeCommon firing off ideas, and he, he nails it completely. But he's somehow able to convince Tom Hanks, even though this is just utter ridiculousness, he's somehow able to convince him that it's possible. Uh, and we get Carrie Fisher in the next scene just being like, oh, really, this is... This is what we're doing, huh? This is the theory? He's like, yeah, it's one theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's one of our ideas, what's going on. 
And and this is the TV watching scene for Hanks, and I, I love it because at this point he's just he's you can tell he's exhausted. He's physically and mentally exhausted by what's going on around him. You know, the boomer dad, I can't be interested thing isn't working, right? Like he's he's his I guess you could say process of disconnection is not effective. But then we get a, a couple other classic horror movie references, uh, including uh, The Exorcist and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, I, I love the extended screaming. We get the very famous, you know, uh, uh, pea soup shooting scene onto Father Marin. Or not Father Marin, but the other one that I don't remember. And then, of course, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, the, the I think it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, actually. But I, I just love Hanks's expression. He's just this blank expression as people are being murdered on screen. And then we transition into a really good dream sequence where you know everything that he's seen in the movies comes back you know he sees the the chainsaw coming through the wall he goes to a, a, a demonic ritual where they have him over a barbecue pit <laughs> they're barbecuing him alive uh which again plays back into like this project that he's supposed to be working on during his you know home vacation his staycation as we would call it now and uh and you know, he's, he's being tortured on his own, you know, barbecue grill. Uh, and then Art gets a chance to come in as Stan, or he's pretending to be Stan, uh, you know, the, the massacring ice cream guy. And it's, it's just, it's great. It's so, I mean, it's funny. It's, it's shot scarily though. I mean, I kind of love it, but it, it definitely is, you know, played more for laughs and, uh, you know, Walter you know, rises out of the trash can with an axe in his head and the dog has, and the a dog has an axe in his, in his head. head. Oh, my God. It's so good. You know, just little comedic touches. But it's it's probably got the best smash cut in the movie as he awakens from this nightmare and he's watching <laughs> Mr. Rogers neighborhood and mouthing along to the, the theme song ironic now, because of course Hanks portrayed Mr. Rogers in a recent film, but you know, he's just in this malaise sitting there with orange juice in his hand, mouthing the words to Mr. Rogers neighborhood in bed. It, again, I think Hanks is pitch perfect in this movie. He's, it's definitely being played for comedy, but he's going to some very kind of dark places with this character. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the reasons why the black comedy works for me is that Hanks at the center of it is capable of continuing to sell us on his own internal states in ways that in a lesser actor and in some ways a lesser director, I think would kind of be lost, right? We wouldn't get that kind of complexity I agree. Um, then uh, we, the next scene I love, like the, the guys come back over, they've got their plan and they try to get Tom Hanks to come down and, and basically play with them. And it's, I actually read a review that said they hated this, this scene, this idea that these men were just these, these little boys that were playing. But I, I think that's exactly the way Dante wants us to interpret it. Like this is this is the ridiculous behavior of a group of boys with too much time on their hands on a summer afternoon. You know, yeah. it's the kind of 
Well, it's supposed would... to be pointing out the immaturity of the situation, that this is a, this is a terrible way to spend your time. Right. Uh, but yet here we are, right? You're obsessing over all of this stuff. And it's, it's just a lovely scene. I mean, he even just kicks at the ground like a little kid, you know, kicking <laughs> at dirt clods on the ball, on the, you know, the, the baseball field or something. <clears throat> but so their entire plan is just to, to let the Klopex know that they know right just to slip a note under their door and run away uh you know again it's it's all very middle school kind of stuff right like these grown men are gonna slide a note underneath their neighbor's door that just says i know what you did um so the dog is uh the the hanks's uh hanks's dog is digging at the the fence row between them so they're you know again dante's kind of setting up for some kind of reveal in the future they slide the note under and hanks is trying to sleep another I, great line I'm only line here trying to sleep <laughs> yeah for the love of god and then we get kind of a hanks freak out which he was far more he was far more uh, comfortable doing at this point in his career than he is now. Cause it's so over the top. It's so silly, but I love it. I, I absolutely adore that his, his reaction when he is just angry beyond belief is just to grab beer cans and crush them. <laughs> he does it twice in the, in these sequence of scenes where he just gets angry and he grabs beer cans and crushes them in his parents. It's just such an impotent, ridiculous thing to do when you're angry right i i just it's so good and again hanks plays it really well but the, now they discover the the human femur that you know seemingly confirms femur that bone. the femur bone biology 101 <laughs> it's oh biology 101 <laughs> just there's so much dialogue in this movie that is that bears repeating and i always love it's very quotable. When 100%. when a script can do that, I love when actors can create those moments. Um, and because there was so much improvisation in this, those moments just feel so genuine and they feel so... They feel so timeless. Like, the humor in this, I feel, even though this isn't really a world that we live in anymore, I, I, think, I think people can appreciate it. I think there's something... Like I said, timeless to the the jokes that are being made. Yeah, I mean it's satirizing a very specific component of American culture that hasn't really gone away. It's it's been modified. You know these these little you know neighborhood cul-de-sacs may not be quite as common as they used to be, or or you know what have you. But this tendency of American you know suburban nosiness is is and the human tendency toward voyeurism. Oh, for sure. Yeah, we're all perverts. Yeah, 100%. Um, but then, of course, the scene we mentioned earlier, the crash zoom, they, you know, Art says this femur, this is Walter, and, and they both just start screaming yeah. at the top of their lungs, and the camera's just crash zooming over and over and over again. Uh, it's it's a wonderful moment. It's just, just brilliant. Uh, and again, if, if you watch this movie and think that it, at any point it's being serious, I think you've completely lost the plot. It's talking about serious things. It has serious moments, but it is most definitely a, a black comedy satire uh, at pretty much every level. But so the Klopex throw a piece of paper back into the yard, and it is, you know, Art's like, oh, it could be anything. It could be a candy wrapper. You're like, nope, it's my nope, note. It's, it's my note. <laughs> it's my note. Yep, definitely is. 
And so Hanks runs in, gets hit in the face with the, the screen door, grabs two more beer cans and crushes them <laughs> in his hands. And uh, it goes like it's again, it's just this this completely stressed, but absolutely impotent and has no idea what to do with it, uh, with his his anger and frustration. It's it's great. So, you know, to keep moving along, like I said, we, we've got a lot that's happened, but the the women sort of step in w- with a voice of sanity and say, we just need to go over and see them, right? Like enough of this this ridiculousness of you trying to figure out what's going on and, and let's just go over to their house and ask them, just get to know them. Um, and so this entire sequence of them in the Klopex house is great. It's perfect. Um you know, the, the Klopeks are, are seemingly welcoming to some extent. Well, uh, we get how, my you know. favorite, we get my favorite person in the movie. Just, just in general, um, Brother Theodore plays one of the Klopeks. Right. And every word that comes out of his mouth is fan- is fantastic. Um, I don't know. Like, I, j- I was so happy that he was in this movie because he's the voice of so many characters that i love and he's be is perfect but yeah like the the women take over and their solution is brownies i love that they come with the customary plate of brownies and then they get dropped immediately on the ground (laughs) they're both the goddamn brownies anyway yeah it's it's that is really good um but so the entire scene is just peak discomfort but it's it's capped with Tom Hanks eating a sardine on a pretzel that's with offered to him. With some of the him. best Foley in movie history. Just it's so, so disgusting. So, so squishy, so crunchy. And Brother Theodore just staring him down while he does it. I, I do love when they offer the sardines to uh, Wendy Shaw's character. <laughs> She's just like, I'm trying to cut down. I'm trying to cut down. <laughs> like... I'm just eating too many sardines. Uh, you know, Bruce Dern is just all aggression and swagger, you know, backed by nothing. Um, apparently, the uh, he, he rips a huge chunk of wallpaper off the wall, and, and that was also an accident. It wasn't supposed to happen, but, you know, Dante decided to keep it in as an example of just how terrible these people are being. Uh, and of course, we're, we're finally introduced to the entire family. So it's Courtney Gaines, who we've already seen, uh, Brother Theodore, who plays Uncle Reuben, uh, and then a third member of the Klopek family, who he refers to as the doctor, uh, who is, is downstairs, but we don't know that at the time. Uh, so his reveal is great. Uh, it's another sort of very Dante moment as the door opens, you see the shadow and he you know, looms large and then turns around and it's, and it's Henry Gibson, uh, who is, you know, five foot three, five foot four, maybe. Um, apparently Dante had seen him in, in another work and, and, uh, <clears throat> and had decided that, uh, you know, he would kind of be, uh, sort of perfect for it uh he had been in inner space as well and that's kind of where they met i think he was in well, they worked together i think it was times, didn't they? yeah they they did several movies together i think he'd seen him in the blues brothers and and really liked him in that and and so he thought that he would be good for this but, but yeah he was uh mr oh god what was his name mr wormwood in inner space i think um and so he's great but another you know 
wonderful reveal, a little horrific moment. He's got uh, latex gloves on, and he shakes hands with Tom Hanks, and it's all red. And so, of course, we're supposed to perceive it as blood, and he clarifies that he's touching up a painting, so it's red paint, not blood, or at least that's what he tells them. Uh, but while all this is happening, Art is on the outside of the house trying mm-hmm. to, to break in, basically. He's got this crude camo on, and again, the humor in this is sometimes just just so great because he's supposed to be being stealthy so he's picked something black but the only thing he has is a black bowling shirt with a yellow collar <laughs> so his idea of being stealthy and invisible is is oh i have to wear black but the only black thing he has has a yellow collar apparently uh what's up with all the candles on the table like, is it just supposed to be creepy? I'm guessing it is, but uh, it's it's such a great moment. So they, they all gather around the dinner table after the doctor arrives, and uh, there's just this pile of candles in the middle of the table <laughs> that are all burning. And it's just, it's great. It, it adds a lot of, like, interesting lighting to the scene. It's very interesting, but uh, it's it's just such a great little, like, what? Why is this happening? And, and it's it's so good. Uh, I love that Bruce Dern is completely confused by the painting that uh, the doctor he has brought He keeps flipping up. it around. <laughs> he doesn't know what direction it's supposed to go. Uh, supposedly that was a painting used in an episode of uh, Night Gallery, the Rod Serling show. Oh, nice. And uh, it's supposed to be from the viewpoint of a patient having surgery. So the person who is, is under the knife is what it is. And and so it's another little subtle nod that the doctor is is doing bad things, I think. But... But yeah, the fact that he can't figure out the orientation and doesn't know what to do with it is is hilarious. Uh, and you know, Bruce Stern is great. I I love Bruce Stern. Wonderful actor. Uh, I actually watched Silent Running with uh, with my daughter not too long ago. I, she's very interested in a lot of the themes that that movie deals with, and so we 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 watched that together and man he's so good in in that movie i mean it's basically just him you know it's it's just bruce stern for like an hour and a half in that movie and uh and then of course his turn is the villain in uh, driver with ryan yeah. o'neill man man what a great great flick but really good obviously he had a sort of second renaissance in his career worked with alexander payne a bunch uh he was on uh, big love it was great on that show but uh just a, a fantastic, fantastic act uh, actor and, and a really good character in this one that he, again, even though he's he's like the stock, like, you know, ex-military neighbor, he does some interesting things with it and, and you know, sort of plays against that type in a couple of ways that's really fascinating. But so uh, the, the Klopex, you know, host them nicely, but... Then Hanks sort of holding on to his shorts <laughs> runs and he lets out uh, their great Dane, right? And that sort of ends the scene as the Dane breaks out and uh, everybody sort of, you know, departs, including Art, who, uh, you know, gets seen by the dog and has to jump the fence. And we do get some nice slapstick, right? You know, Art is, is a pretty good source of that for the remainder of the film, just, you know, pratfalls and stuff. But the main thing we learn is that the Klopeks have an alarm system, right? So if they ever have an intention of getting into their home, they're going to have to deal with that. Which, of course, they decide to do because although Tom Hanks pretends 
to the wives that he's actually come around and the Klopeks are fine and nothing's wrong. He is actually now more, he has even greater conviction that the, Klo- the Klopeks are bad because inside their house, they found, he found Walter's toupee. Uh, implying that they have been back into Walter's house. So now it's game on. And they learn from the Klopeks that they're going to be gone all day the next day. They have to go to the university to discuss another move because they've moved frequently in the last four years, four times in the last four years. Uh, So now the plan is hatched. They're going to break into their home and get an idea of, of, uh, basically they're going to try and find Walter. They believe that he is, uh, you know, been murdered and he's in the basement and, been buried you know, he's buried in the basement so they're gonna have to go find him uh, i will say the one of the coolest shots in this movie and there are some really good ones uh is the reflection of the car in Corey feldman's glasses as the Klopex leave for the day i agree, um, I agree. because really cool. i don't know if it's a special effects shot i think it might actually just be a reflection in highly polished sunglasses like it's it's very very well done. With and if it is a special dollars, shots, that seems right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they I would mean, just you know, do it practically. I, I and it feels that way, and I, I think it's super effective. It's a great moment, um, and it, it sort of reminds us because Feldman hasn't been in the movie for a while at that point. Like it's been like 15, 16 minutes since we've seen him. Uh, so it's it's a nice little moment. But I I love that you know we just kind of get these little you know kind of moving around we see that hanks is sort of getting his family out for the day pushing them out the door you know fisher is obviously aware that he's he's playing her a bit but she's letting him have his fun and uh you know then they can get down to business so again i love that art you know he's going to take care of the security system by cutting the power and I love that he somehow has like this lineman's outfit, right? Like he's got the little hat and everything <laughs> and he's going to climb up the pole and take out the security system, which basically means he's just going to cut power to the house. <laughs> and uh, it's such a great little, you know, slapstick moment. There's a lot of buildup because you know that something bad is going to happen. Art is, is too incompetent to pull this off, but yet here we are. And so he climbs up the telephone pole, he cuts the line Everything seems okay, but then he gets horrifically electrocuted and falls. And it's it's so funny. It's shot so well. And then after that, like, again, I have to think a lot of these lines are improvised, but he's like, oh, my fillings are hot. You know, like, he's got so much. My (laughs) fingernails. His fingernails have turned black. He says his fillings are hot on the inside. It's, oh, it's so good. And, uh, you know, basically we're, we're in the last sequence now. And, and so Corey Feldman invites all of his friends over to watch this insanity. Uh, you know, Bruce Stern's character is up on his roof with a rifle and some kind of like high powered scope to, to watch, you know, to you know, watch for the people to come back home, which he completely fails at at every level, which I think is wonderful. And, uh, and they basically just break into their house, right? Like, he just straight up breaks the window, opens the door, they go down into the basement, they find this huge furnace. But they don't course, investigate it, which I think is fantastic. Because they have it in their heads how this went down. That they're not really there to investigate, they're there to confirm this wild story that they've concocted. Right, that they have zero evidence for, and really no understanding of how it could have happened, but 
this is obviously what happened. So they even turn the furnace on and it just never registers that this is, is weird in any way, even though they specifically say that the furnace goes to 5,000 degrees, you know, so there, again, I think it's a little bit of them, of, of Dante saying that these guys are basically inept. Like they have no idea how houses work or how any of the technology that powers their lives actually functions right like they don't understand it which i, I think is kind of hilarious uh, i was watching portlandia a couple weeks ago uh, just kind of wrapping up the last season my, my wife and i kind of got uh distracted and we never finished it so we kind of just watched an episode here and there and there's an episode in the the last season where uh it's it's one of the male and female character sets that they repeat frequently and and uh Tim Heidecker actually comes over as like a, a, a pest control guy, right? And he can, they, they're having ants in the house. And so he's come over to kill the ants. And basically the entire sketch, they come back to it throughout the entire episode, but the whole sketch is him convincing them that they need to hire another guy to do another piece of work on the house, right? So he goes, he's spraying for bugs. He goes down in the basement and says, oh, these joists are all routed out. I, I know a guy. And, and then like, oh, the joists are rotted out. We also need to replace this wall. Uh, I know a guy. And it just becomes <laughs> this thing where like it started out with Tim Heidecker just there to get rid of these ants. And then within a day, there's like 40 people there all working on other projects. And he's like, oh, I, you know, you could probably fit a pool back here. And he's like, oh, that would be kind of nice. And he's like, oh, I know a guy. And, <laughs> and like, it's just this long thing. And it, it basically, it plays on that idea that, you know, we, we have all of this technology around us that makes our, our lives possible. But most of us, you know, in many ways, myself included, don't really understand how any of it functions. And so these two bumbling idiots who are literally staring at the thing that has been used to cover up the evidence have no idea. So instead, they start digging. They find some loose dirt in the basement. Ah, this is where the bodies are buried. And, and so they start digging. And it's, it's beautiful and hilarious and ridiculous. You know, they've got like a six-foot hole in the basement of this place, and then they finally hit metal. And they're like, oh, it's a tomb. You know, it's, 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 is that what he says? I think he says it's a tomb or it's a coffin or something, you know. But of course, anybody with half a brain in the audience is like, no, it's, it's like an important pipe that's leading into the house. That's absolutely what this thing is. But they're overjoyed. Like they, this is their victory, right? They figured it out. And they were right. And they're, and they were correct the whole time. And then because Dante is a master, everything falls apart within 30 seconds, right? A mysterious car drives up the road and uh, stops in Walter's uh, front porch. And, and who does get out? Who gets out? But Walter and he's fine, right? (laughs) He's not dead. He's fine. He's been with his family who took him to the hospital because he was having heart palpitations and he just forgot about his dog because it was so sudden. So Walter's fine. There are no bodies to be found. The Klopeks return and they've come with the cops because they saw the lights on in the basement and Hanks hits a gas main. And this is the escalation that I adore about Joe Dante, right? This is this is the gremlins all jumping into Yeah, the it pool, goes completely you know? off the rails. Yeah, like everything seems kind of contained and it's still scary and it's fine. But now we have we're going to escalate to the point that 
everything is insane. And so the house, the entire house blows up, right? The gas main gets ruptured and the whole house blows. And Hanks is inside. And Hanks is still inside. Exactly. So Art makes it out, right? He's screaming at the top of his lungs, gas main, gas main, get away. Uh, all of Corey Feldman's buddies are just watching all this stuff happen. And, you know, it, the uh, oh, there's a lightning rod on top of the house that gets launched like some kind of missile, which, again, Dante plays it a bit like a cartoon, I guess, because we get like the, the bomb whistle as it falls. Like, <laughs> and the, the lightning rod spears the, the cop's car just straight through uh, it is this beautiful moment. And the whole house collapses with Hank still inside. But, you know, Hank's kind of stutter steps his way out. Uh, I loved it because as he makes his way out, he he sort of like skips the steps as he comes down. And, you know, my wife was sitting there and she was like, oh, oh man, you could tell he practiced that. And I was like, yeah, that probably, you know, they probably had to do a couple of takes to get that, that little like, you know, hop step where he, he kind of just falls down the steps, but controlled. But then the entire set collapses behind yep. him. That was, and I that was, was like, not planned. Nope, that was not planned. He, that's just how he came down the steps. Uh, and it's, it, again, it's just perfect. It's absolutely perfect on every level. But the brilliance of this scene is that at this point in the film, the Klopeks have done nothing wrong. They've been mysterious, they've been strange, but they have certainly not committed any crimes. So their house has been destroyed by these nosy neighbors and seemingly for no reason at all. So Art is still trying to like, you know, hey, what did you find? You found something. You must have found something. And, you know, all we get are the Klopex just sort of like weeping over the loss of their home. Uh, so everything coalesces. Carrie Fisher comes back. She realizes, of course, that her husband is at the center of this ludicrous display and um, then, you know, everything kind of gets laid out. Like, right? Klopek is a real doctor. The uh, Walter had asked them to pick up his mail, which is why he came, why they had the stuff in his house. The toupee that Hanks dropped back through the mail slot got mixed in, which is why they found it. And then, you know, we get Hanks's huge breakdown. Like, he basically just loses it on art. And he tells us, you know, basically what everybody's been thinking, right? That the people that have been observing the Klopex are the real problem, right? They're the, the crazy ones. Uh, and that Hanks is the one that's just waiting to snap, right? So if there is a super direct satirical point to this film, this, this is, is where it comes. Yeah, like it's, it's pretty obvious and it's very on the nose. But, but again, the film doesn't want to harp on the serious message, which I do like. No, it is absolutely here. And But again, it's completely undercut because Art then just says, well, what do you want? Do you want me to just move away? You want me to move? <laughs> like, like that's going to solve this, right? That Art being present is the problem. And, uh, and, and that's it. Now, I will say that the cop that is in this scene that is standing behind Art as Hanks is having his rant is the writer. Uh, that mm -hmm. is Dana Olson. Uh, but my, my favorite Hanks moment in this movie, it, again, was completely improvised by Hanks on the set. 
And that is where he he lays down on the hospital on the the ambulance gurney, <laughs> and he's like, "Take me to the hospital. I'm sick. I don't want to be I've here anymore. I've been blown up. I've been blown up." And then he picks the bed up and he throws it physically in the van and then jumps on top of it. Entirely improvised by Hanks. Beautiful moment. You can tell Carrie Fisher is just a, she's just watching, trying to figure out how to respond. And, and she's like, are you okay, honey? He's like, yeah, I'm fine. Oh, yeah, Carol, I'm fine. <laughs> it's such a good moment, dude. I, I Probably the best overtly comedic moment in the movie. Like, it's just so good and really emblematic of, of the sort of 80s Hank, right? Hanks, where he, he reaches this breaking point and then just snaps, right? He has a similar moment or uh, a couple like that in Big where he just kind of loses it on his best friend. And, um, you know, we have all those here. But again, this movie is, is not interested in making us believe that it is the suburbanites who are wrong, right? Like, that is that is an undercurrent of this. They certainly want us to understand that their behavior has not been ideal, right? That spying, breaking into their home, sneaking around, like, none of these things have been good behaviors. And Hanks is freak out of that, where he's breaking down, you know, we're the bad ones, we're the ones that made these mistakes, is certainly there to, to communicate that clearly. But, supposedly, there were multiple endings shot for this movie. So, what we rapidly discover in the next scene, uh, as, as Dr. Klopek approaches Hanks inside the ambulance, unexpectedly, is that they are, in fact, killers. <laughs> the, their suspicions are 100% grounded in reality. And that even though um, they appear to have made a mistake, they were actually right all along. Uh, so Henry Gibson gets into the car. He has a syringe full of some kind of, of substance. It's just... It's some dangerous liquid. <laughs> it's bad. We don't know what it is. And uh, he's going to inject Hanks, and he's mad because he feels that he has taken one of his skulls. Uh, he's so on the skulls. That's right. So it's it's some there's some kind of bone collector, I guess. I, I don't know. It's it's not really explained why, but they do have an entire trunk full of human remains because they were not buried in the basement. Uh, they were in the furnace. If they had opened the if furnace they to look at it. it, if they had opened the door, and, and that's another great comedic beat here is he's like, surely you looked in the furnace. He's like, well, yeah, you know, yeah, sure. Like, you know, it, it, it's it's one of those, like, again, you're, you're so inept, you didn't even do the most obvious thing, which is just open the furnace and see what was inside. Um, but so we get a, a great little moment. Uh, oh, the other thing that this movie has at least a marginal claim to fame is that Apparently, most people attribute this film as being responsible with establishing the phrase pizza dude. Because <laughs> that's what Corey Feldman says. He's like, we got the pizza dude coming. Well, um, and he he reprises that role when he played Donatello in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Absolutely. Pizza dude. Um, but that may have originated here. Uh, I, I love this little scene between Hanks and Gibson. Hanks is, is completely under you know sort of gibson's control but I, I love that his excuse to try and get away is i think i left my wallet <laughs> <laughs> i love that that is his his attempted excuse to get away is like you know I, I think i left my wallet you know like that's gonna get him out of this it's it's such a, a dumb moment but it's it's perfect 
so they try to kidnap him and kill him and, and kill him for his skull. And, and of course, you know, he's able to, to sort of mess with Courtney Gaines's driving ability and the ambulance crashes into the pizza truck or they miss each other. And I guess the ambulance crashes into Art's house. Like it actually goes through the front of Art's house and uh, sets it ablaze, which is great. Because they just had a fight about Art, you know, leaving uh, the, the neighborhood and not being able to be around anymore. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's a nice little action beat to, to cap the movie off. It, it gets a couple of visual gags, all the pizzas falling out of the van, the van calling, you know, sort of slamming into the house. And then the, uh, the gurney gets ejected from the back of the ambulance, which is just hilarious. Uh, the camera's mounted on it. They're being pulled through all of this stuff. I love all the people that are around just kind of observing these ridiculous things. Uh, I love that at the end of this movie, there are people on bicycles everywhere. <laughs> what, I don't know what's up with that. I guess the idea is that at a cul-de-sac, everybody's going to ride their bike up to the cul-de-sac um, to see well, what's going on. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is, that's the looky-loo of the suburban neighborhood, you know? They, they really do exist. Um, I, I know people in the neighborhood where you and I grew up, they would, uh, if an ambulance came through, they would follow the ambulance to someone's house. That happened yeah. to us. Yeah, yeah that's true. But, of course, the, the gurney slams into the Klopex car and pops the trunk. And, of course, that reveals the, the pile of dead bodies. And I, we get another crash zoom on the dead bodies, which, again, is just hilarious. And, and then they just straight up ask Klopex, are these yours? Is this your car? And, he, and I love Henry Gibson's reaction. It's so understated. You know, instead of a big freak out, he's just like, eh, 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 you know, yeah. Yeah, there are. Yeah, you know, uh, and uh, and then you know, Art gets to be the hero by by. Uh, no, was it Art? Who was it? No, it was Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern uh, tackles Courtney Gaines. Right, he gets his his hero moment, even though he hasn't done a damn thing for the last half of this movie. <laughs> he fell off a roof and shot out the window in his own Corvette. That's the only thing he accomplished. But again, if you had any doubt of, of what kind of satire this was, I think these last few minutes of the movie sort of make it clear because Art is being interviewed by the, the, by the news and he's just like, yeah, we suburbanites, we're going to stand for this anymore. We're not going to stand for, we're not going to stand for murder. We're coming for you. And it's just the most inane, stupid thing uh, that a person could say, but I, I love it. It's, it's perfect. So, uh, we get another sort of Joe Dante classic move as uh, Hanks and his wife. Because the, oh, the great moment between Hanks and his wife before he gets into the ambulance is he notices that she's cut her hair. I really do like your hair. I really do like your hair. Now, she's had the same haircut for the entire movie. Right? Like, nothing has changed. But he says, you cut your hair. I really like it. And, and that to me, even though it seems kind of apropos of nothing, I think what it really speaks to is that in a lot of ways, Hanks has just been asleep. Yeah. Right? Like he, he hasn't been paying attention to anything, right? That, that 80s boomer dad disengagement applied to every facet of his life, right? Not present for anything. And like it or not, this experience, negative obviously though it was it has a it has kicked him out of that stupor 
right? Exactly. It's kicked him out of that slumber, right? That the you know there the, are more the, important things than watching the neighbors. Exactly, and being involved in all of these little things, and so he's resolved to go on vacation, real vacation with his family, and and you know sort of change the the look of his life, and he he sort of passes off his. <clears throat> what does he say? You you need to watch. You know you're going to watch the. Things. Keep an eye on things now. Like he was, you know, and, and in their own way, all of these guys have been part of this cadre. That's what they've been doing, right? Keeping an eye on things. You know, the 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 sort of classic Western idea of the gunslinger watching for the health of the town, but apropos of nothing and for no reason. And and again, it's that mundane stupidity of of American existence and and this weird crossroads between being you know the cowboy hero of the west who saves the day but yet also being this sort of like normal office guy who doesn't really need to do any of those things but so he puts it in Corey feldman's hands and, and Corey feldman uh in a way that joe dante also enjoys to do from time to time breaks the fourth wall it's such says, an 80s thing such an 80s thing to do in your movie to break the fourth wall yeah, exactly. Like he just, just looks at the camera. Don't do that anymore. Yeah, I love this street, man. Yeah, <laughs> we just don't see it. It's it's such a weird thing. Um, you know, the I think the last movie that did this for me super effectively, like fourth wall breakings. You know, it's it still happens, but it's for, certainly not as common as it was then. Um, but you know, I, I think High Fidelity was probably the last one that did it really well. And like actually was able to consistently break the fourth wall without, you know, sort of just trashing the film. Um, but there, you know, there are good examples, but it, it's is this little tag where the character breaks the fourth wall, you know, Ferris Bueller style and just kind of goes like, man, what a day like that. That is very much like an 80s thing. Uh, and I would say, if anything, the movies that do it now are often just referencing other 80s things. Pretty much. Um but so then we get the reverse of the opening shot as we pull back, you know, to the world, right? We, we went from the universal to the singular, and now we've pulled back to the universal now that we've seen what a, a, a few days in the life of a regular American human looks like. And basically, they're not too great. <laughs> but, uh, and that's it. You know, that's Joe, Dan Joe Dante's The Burbs, uh, a, a sort of semi-forgotten 80s classic, really. Um, and one of a, a string of films that Dante was able to produce in the 80s and 90s that, that still hold up very, very, very well. Um, so I, I guess let's let's move into our, our final phase here. I think, you know, we've, we've discussed the ins and outs of this film pretty deeply at this point as we did our debrief, but... So this film made some money. Like I said, it did okay at the box office, certainly achieved a certain cult status, but you know, didn't really land with any of the, the film critics of the day. But what is one thing that you think could sort of elevate this film even further, right? To make it sort of, to move it from a, a mildly obscure sort of 80s classic into something that we would speak of in the same terms of, Gremlins or E.T., right? What would elevate it to that status, if possible? I think... Gosh, it's so hard, because I do love this movie so much. Um, and as I've just been thinking 
you know, since we picked this one, you know, what would I change about a movie that that for me just kind of hits all of the the things that I want from um, from a comedy horror film. But I suppose I suppose in order to make it more popular with with critics and with people of the time, it seems like the script maybe should have gone a little bit darker in in the way that it was presented. There are so many slapstick moments, especially the physical comedy um, with art and uh, with uh, Rumsfeld. You know, those two characters do a lot of really physical things. Um, maybe trimming that back somewhat would have helped critics reorient, you know, how they were supposed to take this film. Because I think... I think if it went a bit more horror, it might have been a little more successful. I don't know that I would want that, but I think it might have worked. Yeah, I, you can feel towards the end, especially as the film is getting darker, it almost feels like there was a mandate to balance it with um, more overt slapstick. Um, again, art becomes the, the bulk of it, but even from Hanks, there's there's definitely some things. I mean, and I mean, straight up, Bruce Dern just Pratt falls off a roof. Like yeah. straight up, like it's it's pretty much designed for you know slapstick Abbott and Costello style humor. But um, I'm certainly on the same page. I th I think there's room for this to go darker, and I think that may be what people were expecting, right? I mean, not that you never. I don't think there's ever any doubt that the Clopex are bad, right? Yeah. I, I think it's the question of what they've done, how they've done it sure but the movie never really makes any bones about the clopex being evil in some way which is fine but i think because the film follows a fairly straightforward trajectory pushing it darker would be a, a smart choice right to surprise us by maybe how dark it goes but you know for me i think I think a lot of the problems with this movie could have been avoided. Obviously the script, you know, and, and taking place during the writer's strike is a huge part of, of, you know, why maybe they weren't able to push some things in ways that the other expected. But I, I think a lot of it has to be, I, as much as I like the fact that the Klopex are bad and they catch them at the end, I'm not sure that, even though it's satisfying, that was the best choice for the movie. I almost feel like it might have been a more interesting choice to lean into the Klopex just being innocent. Yeah. You know, just just that the Suburbanites got it wrong and the Klopex were fine, right? Weird and strange and, you know, because there is an undercurrent here of, of fearing the outsider and then being justified in that fear of the outsider that I, I think, you know, doesn't necessarily do the movie any favors in the long term. But, you know, I might have I might have been interested to see the version of the film that went that direction with it, of the Klopex just being 
a strange family and, and not really knowing what to do with them. But maybe they had, you know, done something wrong, right? Maybe they did break into Walter's house or, or something like that, you know. But but to actually have them be the murderers and killers that they suspect them to be, I think, is a bit of a cop-out. Um, it's it's funny. It works for the film. Again, I have very few issues with the Burbs. I think it, it plays pretty pitch perfectly as it is. But I think if they were really trying to lean into this real takedown and satire of suburbia that probably would have been a smarter choice. Yeah. But again, supposedly Dante shot three variations on the ending. Uh, even one where, where Klopek is able to kill uh, Tom Hanks's character to kill Ray and successfully get away with it. Um, you know, but the, the audience has pretty much rejected all of the other options except for Ray was right the whole time, you know, because we, we want to, f- I mean, we want to feel justified in those those feelings of strangeness. And I think a lot of it is you know? we like these characters and we don't want them to be wrong. Yes, right. I mean, Hanks, god damn. I mean, dude is just likability encompassed, right? Like yeah. he just he exudes that. And and honestly, I can I I would say for a with near certainty that if Hanks was not the lead of this film, I don't think it would work. No. On pretty much any level. Um, cause it is, it is anchored in his likability and our desire to see him succeed. Um, and I think Dante's smart enough to know that. I, I think that's, that's a, a pretty solid choice on his part, uh, to build the movie around that. Cause certainly nobody else anchors the movie in the way that Hanks does. <clears throat> you know, Fisher does a lot of that work by, by being that sounding board for him. And really going toe-to-toe with him in terms of, of acting skill and building that relationship. But without Hanks as that likable lead, I don't think this movie works at all. So yeah, for me, I, I would have liked them to see them lean into just them being wrong. Uh, I think that might have been, for for the, the history of the film, for forever, to, you know, it might have elevated it there, but... I don't know. I don't know if there's too much you can do to mess around with this movie and still have it retain its base qualities. It's pretty tight, um, which you know, typically with Dante's stuff, that's kind of how it rolls. All right. Uh, so, I think pretty obvious from our discussion, but I'll, I'll let you you share what is our failure piece score with this one. So again, critically derided at the time, uh, and you know, found some footing, but not a huge success. So uh, what's your rating and recommendation? Mine's pretty crazy high. Um, this is a 95 for me. I can't think of of too many movies that really find my happy place of funny and scary. Um, that's that's just one of those things that I look for in a movie. You know, that's why I love the Evil Dead films. You know, it's 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 just something that I I appreciate. And so this is a 95 for me. I I cannot recommend this film enough, especially mm-hmm. to people who are, you know, maybe between the ages of like 25 and, and, you know, 45, because I think you're still, you're within the, the appropriate range to appreciate a film like this. And if not, you know, you give it a shot because it's, it's a, a film that it is a cult classic, but like I said, I can't believe it's not a bigger one. 
You know, I look at the success of Gremlins and what a sensation that movie is to this day, especially with internet culture, the way that it has sprung up. You know, Gremlins is hit on a lot. And it amazes me that people have not expanded out to the rest of Joe Dante's work and specifically the birds. Yeah. And again, without Hanks as the lead, I I think this movie would be forgotten. Um, You know, because I I think there are a lot of, you know, Hanks fans who are going to stumble across this just because it's got Hanks in it, um, which is good. But without him at the center of this film, I I really, you know, A, again, I don't know if it would have worked in the first place, but I I don't think it would be something that people would return to uh, very often, if at all. So I'm, I'm pretty much in the same boat. This is a 90 for me. Um, I watched it twice today. I would probably watch it again uh, without much hesitation. Uh, just because I think it's it's the, the brilliance of a very, very traditional storytelling structure. Very straightforward, simple three-act structure. Careful reveals, decent mystery to drive you through the drier parts. And then a nice sort of big action set piece to wrap it up. Like there's there's really nothing surprising about it, but that's comforting, comforting, and and enjoyable to just sort of luxuriate in, right? It's not a movie that requires tremendous effort on your part. You've got a lot of chuckles and giggles that are going to happen, right? The chortles and chuckles that make the kids go crazy. Like it's got lots of those, and there's a ton of intricate detail that if you do watch this multiple times and pay attention, you're going to see like Art's yellow collar on his black, you know, sneaking around outfit. Um, Just little, little things that are funny. Pineapples as part of your morning breakfast, right? Just really cool stuff. And, and so this is a a 90 for me, as I said, and uh, a hard recommend, right? If you've never seen the burbs, find it. Do whatever you have to do to find it because it is absolutely a wonderful little sort of mild black comedy that pokes fun at a really specific time in American history, but still kind of grabs at some core things that we still deal with. And um, again, we're wrapped around a just beautiful performance from Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher and and uh, pretty much all of the leads. Uh, and as you said, even Corey Feldman, who I, I generally don't find enjoyable to watch. <laughs> uh, I don't hate him, but you know he, he has a shtick that can, can grow weary very quickly. I am um, a lover of, of the Corey Feldman, but I, I think I just, I, I loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles so much. I love that voice. I love, mm, that st- I love his stupid face. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was the right age. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. That's that's a good good way to say it. You're the right age for Feldman love, um, and, and he, you know, he had a string of very very popular movies. This being, uh, and if you don't them, so. think that that boy can act, then you should definitely watch Stand by Me because that boy can act. Oh yeah, no, I mean Stand by Me is the the elephant in the room of 80s, you know, kids going on adventure stories for sure. Because uh, that one probably solidified that genre as being a serious one where you can actually do serious storytelling, not just this sort of more genrefied stuff for sure. All right. Well, that's The Burbs. And boy, is it something. Hard recommend from both of us. 
uh, and a, a bona fide failure piece, if there ever was one. All right, so uh, where can you be found on social media if people want to get a hold of you? I can be found on the Twitter at Baskinator. Very nice. I can be found at TBaskin for ease of use. Uh, you can also get a hold of us at FPeace Theater on Twitter, or you can email failurepeace at gmail.com. Well, happy October, and uh, we will be looking at some other fairly frightening films over the course of this month in an attempt to sort of delve into uh, a genre we haven't paid a lot of lip service to yet on Failure Peace Theater, but has plenty for us to pay attention to, and that is a bit of horror, a bit of suspense, a bit of chill. So we will certainly be back next week with another fun and fancy episode. Uh, so remember, you can never truly be a failure if you're loved, and we love the burbs, and we also love you. So have a great week. We'll see you next time.